Good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope you're doing well. It is August the 4th, 2013. I hope you're doing very well. Thank you. You know, every now and then I remind myself, or the world reminds me, that I have what really amounts to the best freaking job that this planet has to offer. And... Yes, 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 I've earned it, and I put 30,000-plus hours of work into philosophy before I started the show. Or, yeah, 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 okay, I get all of that. But nonetheless, uh, it's because you all open your hearts and minds on this show to me, to the world, to the future. And I really, I really appreciate it. And, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't take it lightly. I don't take it for granted. But this really is the best job in the known universe. And from that standpoint, I am incredibly grateful to you. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to everyone who donates time, money, energy, honesty to the conversation. And uh, I believe that we are doing a huge amount of good in the world, massive amount of good in the world. And I really, really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much, everyone. And yes, we are going into our retro pile. Greatest hits from the 80s. Well, okay, not quite the 80s. You can, James, if you want to. <laughs> he won't leave your calls behind. So, James, who do we have up first? Uh, first up today, we have Antonio. Antonio, go ahead. Hello, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Um, I'm on the West Coast, so you got me up really early. I was going to say, like, it sounds <laughs> like one of us had our coffee. I'm not sure who, but one of the two. Only <laughs> you. Um, let's see. So, and I'd look, I would in general like to apologize to our West Coast listeners for the early hour of the show, but uh, you all have such great weather yeah, that it's I, just I, my way of saying, well, uh, I'm going <laughs> to act on bitter petty envy uh so sorry about that but uh but still feels good yeah i just started um job at a um in a major chemical uh process company uh another arts major <laughs> yeah yeah i was able to get that right out of school so that made me happy and i was wondering uh, if you have a philosophical perspective um or several principles on being it's becoming clear i'm have to navigate some irrationality in that workplace or just personalities, or even outside of actual um, collaboration, some things to, to just universally focus on. Yeah, so your question is sort of how to be productive at work kind of thing, how to make sure, do you have job security? Well, I mean, the basic job security is profitability, and I don't know if you, I don't know if Dilbert is still popular, I used to read the cartoon I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. I haven't watched, looked at it in a while, but there's a great Dilbert where uh, I think Dilbert is standing in the hallway flicking his fingers. And because he's on salary, people are like, hey, wait a minute, you're getting paid for flicking your fingers in the hallway. And there is that sort of aspect. And I remember when I first was on salary, you know, taking a, you know, a Yule log size morning dump and thinking like, hey, I'm getting paid to take a crap. <laughs> Things like that. It's kind of weird, right? And... So, but there's, there's a kind of a real truth in what he's saying, which is 
that it's very easy when you're salaried, when you are sort of a cog in the machine, it's very easy to lose the thread of what you're doing and the productivity, the, the profit that is generating for your company. And so the best way to maintain job security is to maintain profitability, right? I mean, if you're making money for the company and it's clear that you're making money for the company and everyone knows that you're making money for the company, then you, you're not going to get fired as long as the company is making money of some kind. Or even if it's not, then maybe you become even more valuable. But um, trying to follow that thread, particularly at an entry-level position, uh, even a skilled and qualified technical one like yours, I would try and figure out the thread. So, you know, you can either figure it out yourself, smart guy, obviously, but you can also sit down with your boss and say, well, wait a second, I, I really want to understand how what it is that I'm doing translates into profit for the company. And learning the business side of whatever you're doing is the difference between employee and employer, right? Employees are responsible for getting things done. Employers or managers are responsible for profit and loss. And so learning about profit and loss early in, the, uh, in, in your career is really important. It helps you make better decisions as an employee. That way you're not just running around doing whatever your boss tells you to with no idea of how it makes money or not. But it also does position you to reach for the brass ring, if you want that, of, of profitability. Like I hired two R&D guys way back in the day. I hired two R&D guys in the software field, and one of them was just a tech monkey. You know, he had square eyes and robot hands, and <laughs> all he wanted to do was to uh, work on, on the computer, and, and that was fine. There was no problem with that. And the other one was, you know, good, technically for sure, but he also wanted to come with me on sales calls. He wanted to learn the business side and so on. And... So he got less R&D done, but I wanted him to be available for the sales calls. I wanted, you know, that way he could uh, help carry the load. And he was really interested in the business side. So, of course, I would sit down, show him the spreadsheets. And I've always run uh, businesses for employees as an open book. And so that aspect is really important. Learn the business side. Learn how the decisions that you're making as an employee affect profitability. Because as we all know, from those of us who are interested in economics, it all comes down to profit and loss. I mean, it's, it's that simple. You know, every time there's a store not far from where a friend of mine lives, it's a, it's a little, little toy store, a little sort of secondhand kids clothing store and so on. And, and it closed down. And I'm always fascinated. I'm always curious. Like, what, what happened? What happened? How long did you go into debt before you closed it down? How heartbreaking was it to close it down? I don't mean this from like, I want to see the heartbreak. I'm just, I want to know why businesses, I was, I mean, I don't want to know why they succeed too, but I also want to know why they fail. I'm always rapidly curious about what happened. So job security is profitability. And if you can't figure out how what you do adds to the company's profits, then that is not a very secure position to be in, because anytime there's a reduction in headcount, you know, the, the consultants zoom in, in that office space scenario, the consultants zoom in and they try and figure out who's making money and who's not. And if no one can tell you or no one can tell them, 
then you are in a precarious position. So that would be, you know, we think it's all about the technical expertise, and that's great. But uh, much more important than that in the long run, in terms of your career and security, is learning the business side. So does that, does that help at all? Yes, it, it does. Now, the, the other thing, though, is that I'm in the, the, um, the maintenance department. So um, we don't produce, um, but we fix. Uh, I wouldn't look at it that way. <laughs> You know, I mean, the maintenance department of a, of a car shop produces cars that continue to work, right? So you, you are producing things. You know, things wear out and maintaining things is economically essential, right? So, I mean, if, if a pair of my socks wears out, I can choose to stitch them up or darn them. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to swear. But I can choose to stitch them up and I have saved the cost of, uh, of a new pair of socks. So, you know, maintaining things is essential to the bottom line of a company because, obviously, um, maintaining means you don't have to outlay capital in the, in the, in the um, purchasing of new, new equipment. So, uh, no, I would, I would argue it's very much a profit and loss center. But one of the things you could learn about is that the taxes, the tax sort of laws around buying versus maintaining are quite interesting. You can also look at industry standards and see whether you are – meeting industry standards like what's the average life of widget X and how much does it cost in general to maintain it. You can join professional organizations and share tips with other people and learn how other people are doing things. And all these things will add to your value. So sorry, didn't mean to interrupt too much, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I was, I've, I've been trying to be conscious about that, how we, and I've been asking those questions, um, how I can work in a way where they understand the value of our services because it's kind of like, the plants are uh, customers, and they spend the money out of their budgets to deal with us. Right. So, so I mean, you can obviously like, – explaining the value of maintenance is tough to people because there's no ribbon-cutting ceremonies, right? It's what happens in politics too. Like everybody loves to build a new road, but maintaining an old road is kind of <laughs> – kind of boring, which is why there's so much uh, unfunded liability and maintenance work in, in the government sphere. So, but, but you can, of course, uh, at some point, you could still, still talk about this with your manager, might want to wait a little bit, but you can at some point say, you know, well, we really want to help make the case as to why what we're doing is so valuable. So you can talk about the amount of capital invested in the existing machinery or equipment, its expected shelf life, uh, the cost of replacement versus the cost of repair. And, and then you can help people to understand that, you know, the repair and maintenance of what you're doing is saving the company X millions of dollars versus replacement. And, you know, more proactive maintenance obviously is going to extend the life of the equipment. At some point, it becomes sort of pointless, right? You could replace the car's engine every day, but you'd never get to drive it, and it would cost a huge amount. But, but you, can, you can make that case in a very clear way, uh, and I think that's important. Um, and people, without being reminded, tend to forget about non-obvious value. Uh, so... So, yeah, I think you can understand that, communicate it, and um, I think that – like R&D is one of those things as well. You know? R&D is very much around let's spend a huge amount of money now, and we believe that we will stay market competitive in you know, 12 to 24 months. Uh, and that stuff's all, it's all pretty tricky and complicated to explain. But if you make predictions, say, well, here's our predictions, here's how we're going to stick to them. Uh, that's important, right? I mean, I started doing R&D because I loved R&D, 
But it was very quickly explained to me <laughs> at a very senior level that R&D involved making predictions about future sales and price points and then having to meet them. Whereas I thought it was about making predictions about the features we were going to add and when we were going to be done, <laughs> right? And, you know, how does that affect? You know, let's say that we add a, a, a unicorn horn to every screenshot. Well, so what? <laughs> you can, you can, you know, it might take a while to do and we might get it done on time, but how's that going to add value in terms of cash to, uh, to the product? So anyway, I hope that that makes some sense. Yeah. So, um, Follow the money, it never lies. <laughs> yeah. uh, for another small one, they won't interactive. It's just about the social contract. Oh, I'm sorry. Listen, I'm, I'm really going to try and get to every caller without it being a three-hour show where I faint near the end. So uh, if you don't mind, and I'm sorry if it's been a bit of a short call for you to get up early, but I'm going to move on to the next caller. But I certainly do appreciate you calling in. And now, listen, congratulations on <laughs> getting a job out of, uh, out of college uh, as a history major. I can only seethe with envy. <laughs> so good for you, man. And uh, I hope that you can get some sleep. Thanks, Emil. And James, who do we have next? Uh, next up, we have Kevin. Hello. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Steph. How's it going? Uh, oh, I've been better. <laughs> ah, what's up? Um, well, first, um, excuse my jitteriness. Uh, to me, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking to a celebrity, so, you know, uh, bear with me. <laughs> You're not like the last caller's roommate who stole all his coffee, are you? Uh, no, I don't drink coffee. I can't stand the taste of it, so. Look, if you're going to be an addict, you've got to commit. Who cares about the taste? Do you think heroin feels good after your 50th injection? Sorry, I may have had a little bit too much, but uh, go ahead. I hear you, I hear you. Um, Steph, I, um, I suffer from um, real bad stomach anxiety. And um, I know you're not a therapist and, um, and whatnot, but um, I don't know. I'm just kind of at my last straw. I'm almost 36 years old, and I've dealt with this problem for over 30 years. Oh, man. And, um, you know, whereas most people, you know, when they feel anxious and nervous, you know, they feel it in their chest, you know, they feel it like, oh, no, I'm having a heart attack. And most of the time, um, you know, a lot of people, they've never experienced it before. And that's why they feel like they're having a heart attack. Um, but for me, it's all in my gut. Right. And um, it, uh, it's terrifying. And I, you know. And what is, what is, when you say it's in my gut, what? What sensation? Oh, oh I, I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna throw up or shit my pants. It's or both, you know. <laughs> oh shit! Okay, right. So anywhere approximately eight feet from a bathroom only adds to the anxiety, right? No, it doesn't add to it. Um, it or, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. If I'm a further away from eight, you know, eight feet away, then yeah, it's it feels scary. Um, and unfortunately, it happens. Uh, you know. Not necessarily day-to-day things, but, you know, when uh, someone asks me to go out to do something fun. Um, my, uh, really? okay. my girlfriend is in Hawaii right now without me because I, I can't go. I can't do it. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, so it's, um, I mean, it's a pretty severe anxiety problem that manifests itself in your gut, right? Yes. Yes. And what are your theories as to where it comes from if it started around the age of six, or at least that's when you can first remember? It could have started earlier. could have been colicky baby. I don't know. But what are your theories? Um, well, I guess, I guess possibly behavior. Um, you know, my, my mother had a similar problem, um, but nowhere near to the extent. What does behavior mean? Uh, well, okay. Well, like, well, okay, good point. I don't know what behavior means. Um, <laughs> I was like, what are your theories about it? Purple, blue. Wait a minute. I don't know what that means. Right, right, right. You're right. 
Um, I don't, you know, I can remember the first time it happened. I was in a kindergarten class. Um, oh, no, no. See, I don't want the first time. I want your theories about why it happens. Why it happens. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and I'm in, and sorry, I'm, I'm on the spot. And so my brain just. You don't look. No, look, if you had an easy answer or if you had a right answer, you wouldn't be calling in. Sure, right. Point. So my, my purpose as a host is to push you immediately in the place where you don't know what to say, Yes, exactly. <laughs> which for somebody with an anxiety problem is the least fun thing imaginable, but it's the most productive thing, right? Yes. Because we have a script wherein we explain our lives. And if that script is true, then our problems get solved. And if that script is not true, then our problems continue or get worse. Correct. Okay. Right. Like if you're a runner who says, well, the reason I'm not winning races is I'm not smoking enough, <laughs> then <laughs> your script is not going to enhance your productivity as a runner. Exactly, sure. right? Sure, sure. So, so if your script was working, then your anxiety problems would be better. I don't know whether they'd be gone, but we'd assume they'd be better. Sure. But um, so when I ask you why, you know, and you don't know what to say, that's a very productive place to be. I mean, that's where we want to get to as quickly as possible. So yay, quick. Okay. But, um, Okay, so why do you think you feel this level of anxiety? Um, um, you know, I don't know if it's a matter of a, a confidence or, a, or self-esteem. Um, Those are all symptoms. The question is the cause, right? The cause. Um, I mean, you've already told me one part of it. Mm-hmm. Which was what? The, well, as far as the cause, all I can... All I, all I think about is the first time it happened. No, that's, that's the manifestation. That's not the cause, right? Okay. Right, so you might have lumps in your lungs, but the, and that would be the manifestation, but the cause would be smoking, let's say, or something else, right? Okay, okay. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, man. I, I, I just I don't know how to answer that. Um, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. I, I'm sorry to say. Okay, so you already told me that your mother had anxiety, right? Uh, to some degree, yes. Okay, uh, and how did that manifest itself? Uh, for her, it was her gut. She said um, she would feel like she would, you know, have, uh, you know, have diarrhea, have the runs. Right. And so she fixed it by keeping some kind of, you know, some emodium with her wherever she went. Well, I don't know that that's exactly fixing it, but that is managing the symptoms, I suppose. Yes, yes. Well, and for her, she said that that helped her, you know, because she had some kind of backup, you know, she felt, you know, that she could go onward and, and it went away. And why did your mother ever talk about causes? Like, why am I this way? Um, no, I mean, she couldn't, didn't really know exactly. I mean, she, you know, grew up having Didn't even know approximately, right? Um... I'm not trying to because people use these words like well, so if you didn't know exactly, it's like well then is it 98 percent? Because that would be 100 percent knowing exactly. But if she sure, says sure, sure. that the way I manage it is with uh, emodium, that's not even knowing a little bit, right? Sure, sure. And that will okay. some, that's a conversation I will have with her too. Um, uh, she had problems with her mother growing up, all the you know in her adult life until her mother died. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 that's the thing. I don't know why this happens. What about your father? Um, no, he was relatively okay. I mean, yeah, he told me about times where, you know, he had been nervous, but, um... Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, could be a complete psycho to never be nervous, right? Correct. Um, but he was able to deal with it. I mean, he's, you know, he was the mayor of our town for quite a while, so he, 
you know, he was able to just deal with whatever anxiety he may have felt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, so obviously your father would have to have evil, but productive social skills to become a mayor, right? I mean, you got to press the flesh, <laughs> kiss a lot of babies and all that kind of stuff, right? Actually, he's a very, very nice man. He's a, he was a, he, uh, a boy scout, but yes, I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> you know, it's the anarchist thing I, I, I throw in the pitch, but anyway. Um, I told you. So how did your mother experience the social life of a mayor's wife? Uh, for the most part, it was fine. Um, unfortunately toward the end of, he was 12, he was in for 12 years and, um, was, <laughs> sounds like there, a, it sounds like a prison sentence, which is what it would be for me. But I understand for some, yeah, he was in for twelve years, and he won early parole from mayorhood. But uh, anyway, exactly. Um, there was a, an environmental group that was um, accusing him of of uh, being and um, you know working with de uh, land developers and stuff like that. And uh, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying baseless accusations from left wing people? Yes, mudslides. Oh, I've never heard before, that so. before. <laughs> Shocking. You might want to read Bullies by Ben Shapiro. But anyway, go on. And um, and um, anyway, so that um, a lot of people turned on him. Even some friends turned on him because, you know, they heard rumors. And and how old were you when this happened? Uh, I was an adult. I was in uh, early 20s. Okay, so we're not here at the root, right? No, 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 no. Um, how prepared did you feel for school? Oh, do you have siblings? I do. I have an older and a younger brother. I'm the middle. Is there a fairly narrow gap in, in age, or is it fairly wide? Or uh, My older brother's five years older, and my younger brother is 10 years younger. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Michael was a welcome was working surprise. quite a long time. Got it. <laughs> no, my, yeah, my kid brother was a welcome surprise. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And, uh, and uh, anyway, in school, I dealt uh, as far as the anxiety or just with dad and his political career. No. So when you were a child, how prepared did you feel for school, right? Because you said that your first memory of the anxiety showing up was in kindergarten, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So um, I was, you know, besides uh, the very first day of school, uh, you know, was natural nervousness. I didn't have any kind of a problem. Um, the, unfortunately, the school where I was at, I went to uh, a school that was on an Indian reservation. And I was uh, one of I was one of a handful of uh, white children, and so there was some picking on. Um, but honestly, I don't, I don't, I really don't think that contributed to it in any way. So you, you know, don't think like that being picked on and being in a sort of significant minority position affected your uh, level of anxiety in any way? Um. No, because honestly, the first time this uh, anxiety attack happened was literally out of the blue. Um, yeah, but that's not. But that's that's not a causal effect of what I'm saying, right? Sure, sure, sure. And if you tell if you tell me that that being picked on and being in a significant minority position had no effect on your social self confidence or any possibility of anxiety, I can't. I mean, I just can't think that that's true. Um. I just uh, it, it's being not picked like on is unpleasant, right? Yes, yes, of course. It's scary. Yes. Were you picked on verbally, or were you threatened physically, or both? Uh, it was verbally. And what sort of uh, would you? How would you be taunted? What would what would the content be? 
the instance was I was uh, I was talking to who uh, sh- her her skin was white, but it turned out that she was you know half uh, uh, half North American or Native American, excuse me, and uh, her cousin didn't like that. And uh, was kind of just, you know, um, you know, kind of marked his territory, I guess. That's not answering the question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Sorry. Wait, uh, so what, in what, what form did the, um, like, what were you called? What, how did the verbal um, bullying occur? What was said? Um, you know, exactly. I don't know. It was, you know, it was kind of just a, you know, hey, you know, don't talk to her, you know, leave her alone. And was there a threat of or what? I mean, so what? What if you don't, right? Correct. And if there was one, I ju- I just don't remember. I don't yeah, because I mean, that. if I say to somebody, "Can you pass me my coffee?" and they say no, I say, "Okay, well, I'll get it myself." I'm not going to fight them, right? Exactly. Yeah. So whenever there's um, a "Don't do this" or "Do do that" from bullies, there's always the threat of aggression behind it, right? Okay. Yes. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, you sound like I'm no. quartering you with some insane argument. No, and I'm not trying to. Um, it's it's just I, uh, it, it, like I said, it wasn't a, I wasn't picked on daily or anything like that. And it, I think it happened, you know, that instance was just a one time. And my anxiety is always based around going out and living life and doing something fun. Now, would you say so that I, you, you know, were, if you had to compare your intelligence with the intelligence of those around you in this school, um, what would you say? Did you feel smarter oh, than them, know. less smart, or about the same? The same. All right. At least from a six-year-old perspective, you know, I thought I was the same as everyone else, ex- you know, just except for my skin color. So. Right. Now, how long did you go for that school? Did you go to that school? Um... A year, and then what yeah, it wasn't. Very, uh, then I moved. Um, I moved. Uh, the town I live in is right next to the Indian Reservation. It, you know, so I, grew, you know, early childhood, I grew up in the town. We had to move onto the Indian Reservation because my folks' parents had a house on a private beach out there. And then uh, after that year of school, we moved back into the town. Um, and then I, you know, just went to school, you know, in, in that district, you know, for the rest of my school career. Right. And when you were a kid, did you go out and do fun things with your family? Uh, yes. And did yes. you find that to be anxiety provoking? There were lot there were lots of times where it wasn't and lots of times where it was. And do you have any idea what the difference was? Um that this is the thing, man. It is so generalized. I no, I don't. It, it's very confusing. Um, you, you know, there. You know, I go do certain things um, that were fun, and then the next time I go and do them, I'd have a problem. And to what degree did you get support from your family with this issue? Um, I think they were at first they were lost and confused. I mean, they didn't know what to do. Um, you know, uh, they first called it, you know, you know, you're, you're nervous and it's okay to be nervous. You know, it will go away, you know, try to work through it. Um, but it, it, it kept on going and going. And so I ended up started seeing a therapist in, uh, eighth grade. So I was like 12, 13. And how long did you see the therapist for? 
Um, uh, he was a psychologist. I, I think I saw him around about a year. Um, but there was a, an incident, you know, I, um, I bloomed early and, uh, thought I had gotten a girl pregnant and that, um, you know, increased. I, I was, I was, uh, 13 going on 14 when I lost my virginity. And, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, uh, and, and I don't want to say exactly how did that come about because I have some idea. Well, and anyway, so like I said, I was it. Sorry, I, was the girl the same age? Uh, she was a year older. Did your parents know that you were dating? Did your parents know that you were having sex? No. Did no, your no, therapist no. know? Uh, yeah, I told him. And what did your therapist say? Uh, well, at the time, because I was so uh, the anxiety got so bad, he um, he said he didn't know what to do and referred me to a psychiatrist and thought um, maybe I would okay. thought I would need medication to go along with the therapy. And this was during the time when you had the anxiety about getting the uh, girl pregnant? Correct. Because that's, that's terrifying, right? Yes, yes. And yes. it is a sign, though not obviously proof, but it is a sign of significant dysfunction that you're having sex that early, particularly, I would imagine, unprotected sex, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And did you end up on meds? I'm sorry, what? Did you end up on meds? I did. I was taking Prozac. And uh, that, that seemed to help, um, you know, during school. I, you know, even went out with a football team and, um, you know, was doing... Sorry, you went know, out other... with the football team or went out for the football team? Oh, I, you know, I got on to the football team. Excuse okay. Me. Sorry. Just want to make sure I understand your language here. Okay. <laughs> Got to go. Um, Pregnant almost went out with the football team. <laughs> okay. All right. right, 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 right. And, um, you know, and so things were going okay. And um, after a while. Well, wait, wait. You know, so did you not tell your parents about your fear of uh, the pregnancy? Uh, no. Why not? Because. Um, um, did you not talk to your parents about dating or having potential sex? No, I didn't talk to them about that. They would. Why not? Because they would get in the way of it. Because they would get in the way? Right. They <laughs> Wouldn't would. that have been a good thing? <laughs> I mean, you're 13, for God's sakes. They should be getting in the way. Well, I, you know, at that time, no. I, you know, I liked her and wanted to, so. Well, but had your parents talked to you about sexuality? Did you have, like, had you the had person. to talk? I mean, did they understand, yeah. you know, pregnancy, STDs, all that kind of stuff, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, so you understand that, that this is not a great connection, at least in this area with your parents, right? Oh, like you, you, you pursued a romantic slash sexual relationship entirely too early in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then you had this terror about getting a girl pregnant, which is, I mean, unbelievably terrifying, of course, Mm -hmm. at that age. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you talked about it with the therapist i have no idea what the legal requirements are i'm sort of surprised that the therapist wouldn't say to your parents listen this is what he's dealing with this is a bit outside my scope but you all need to step in and figure this out right because i don't think that he has confidentiality agreements with you that supersede his reporting requirements to the parents but hey what do i know i mean that's just sort of my guess sure sure but sure. But, I mean, but that's, that's only pretty one secretive is- stuff right 
Correct. Correct. And did you have you ever told your parents about this? Oh yes, yes, it, yeah. It came out later on, eventually. Yes, it came out. Meaning you told them? Yes, correct. Hmm. In fact, what was that, the reaction? Um, well, the reason why I mean we we were we got into a fight because I was having uh, you know the grades weren't all that great, and uh, you know they wanted me to you know and then and just. You know, so that conversation, it was, it was, we were all heated and upset with each other. And then, you know, we talked about the grades and then it just, eventually it just came out at the end. And, you know, I told them and um, I was expecting them to be angry and upset because at least, you know, from my mom, she'd always said, you know, no, you wait till you're married before you do that. Huh. And uh, all right. And, um, obviously, and then, you know, when I told him, I, I guess I told him because, it, you know, I was keeping it just a secret and just felt the need to confess. And, you know, they were, they weren't mad or upset about it at all. They obviously could see that I was upset and, uh, you know, they were understanding about it. You know, they, they were like, well, Hey, you know, we were teenagers too. And that's where uh, they revealed that they didn't wait till they were married. So, uh. Um, but yeah, but I honestly, feel, I feel let, me, like, let me let me just ask you another couple of questions. Um, do you feel that you have principles with which you can guide your life's decisions? Yes. And what would those principles be? Um, I, I until I started listening to you, I didn't know what they were called, but I believed in the non-aggression principles. Okay. I, you know, which I, you which know. which is nice, but doesn't actually add up to much in your life unless you're regularly getting into fist fights, right? Correct. Which I or I you have I, kids I, and you're trying to decide how to deal with them or how to negotiate with them or whatever. Right. So that, that that's probably not a huge one that you think up every day. Say, damn it, I'm really not going to punch any hobos today. I'm going to grit my teeth and try and get sure, through sure. the day without punching. Right. That's so. What else? Um, I just, I try to treat others as I would want them to treat me. And so I start, you know, treating people with respect until, you know, otherwise, and, you know, until they go against me. Um, I'm just gener generally and overall, I'm, I'm a nice person and care about people. Um, yeah. Right. I'm sorry, man. I, I really feel like I mean, I mean, we're going in the. Well, the, the problem is that you don't you don't have the habit of introspection yet. I mean, so when I'm asking you these questions, um, you don't have the, in my opinion, you don't have the habit yet of of digging deep and trying to figure these things out. So my suggestion would be, okay, okay. Uh, to sit down with your parents, uh, and you know, in particular your mom, and try and figure out the source of your mother's anxiety and then see if okay. there were any patterns that occur. Like, I mean, the fact that you are anxious about going to have fun, well, I imagine that having sex when you're 13 was kind of fun, right? But then it had these disastrous consequences. So the fact that you might associate disaster with fun might not be completely impossible, right, based upon that experience. Is that, does that make any sense? Yes, but, but I mean, there was lots of other experiences before you know and after that um 
that is which is why I associate the anxiety with ha- having fun. No, no, I, I get that. I get that. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But that, I mean, that that desire to to pursue unprotected sex at that age would not have come out of nowhere. Um, uh, so anyway, so I would sit down with your parents and just try and figure out where does this anxiety come from and uh, see if you can find any patterns between your mom and yourself. Look at the actual triggering uh, incidents and try and figure those out. Um, why one time and not the other? Um, really work. Uh, as you start to explore this process, you will probably start to get some very vivid dreams because, right, you're subconscious would be like, oh, are we going down? We're going to solve this. Fantastic. Okay. Here's some dreams to help you out and that kind of stuff. So you might want to write those down and so on. But um, I think trying to develop the habit of introspection uh, will be the most important thing to help dismantle some of this anxiety. And um, uh, that, that would be my, uh, my suggestion because when I'm asking you questions of origins and depth, you are giving me descriptions of symptoms which means okay. that you just don't have much of a habit as yet, in my opinion, of really uh, introspecting. And okay. uh, this is probably would be why these manifestations are continuing, if that makes any sense. Yes, that does. Okay. Do you, do you know, are there any sources of learning introspectiveness? Well, I mean, a, a really great therapist could help. I mean, I know you already tried that when you were younger, but um, uh, you can. Uh, John Bradshaw has workbooks, Nathaniel Brandon has workbooks where you try to figure out where your thoughts come from. I mean, the 101 is that uh, uh, all emotions are generally preceded by thoughts. Yes. Uh, This is fairly well scientifically established that we have a thought which then produces an emotion. So somewhere at the bottom of your anxiety is a thought. Yes, okay. And uh, if you can't figure out that thought, then it's very difficult, if not impossible, to deal with the anxiety without, you know, crappy self-medication like sex or drugs or rock and roll. And so you have to try and figure out what the thought is that precedes the emotion. And the thought generally comes from other people, right? So I'll give you sort of an example from from my own life, excuse me. And so in, in my own life, when I was a child, I had to exist within society. But society was very dangerous, right? I mean, physical, emotional, verbal abuse at home, um, dangerous kids in the classroom, uh, non-support from any of the adults around me for the, this, what I was suffering and so on. So the world was dangerous, but I still had to live in the world. I couldn't stay home. Right. I had to go to school or whatever, right? And so I had to bury my empirical understanding of the danger of the world in order to exist within it. And that created a conflict within me. I have to go out into the world. I know it's dangerous, but if I show fear, it's even worse, right? Right. Because if you show fear, then you get that laser target for bullies and so on. So what did I do? Well, I developed a sense of humor. I developed verbal dexterity. I developed an appearance of confidence, right? Because it's like I'm, I'm scared of these dogs, but they can smell fear. Right, so I have to stride like I'm not scared of them, in order to not be attacked. Right. Right. You built a defense. Yeah. Yeah, and that defense was in contradiction and was a direct result of the danger that I feared and faced. It wasn't just fear; it was actual danger that I faced within society. Okay. And that danger occurred at many levels. Right. So we care about the children, but nobody is working to help me. Uh, Adults would say honesty is really important. 
But whenever you would start talking about things as a kid that made adults uncomfortable, they would stop the conversation in one way or another. So it's like, okay, well, which is it? Is honesty actually important or is just honesty about what you're comfortable with important? And that became complicated as well because society is, uh, I mean, is largely a den of mirror-armored liars, you know, a hide of bright armor. Uh, Because they keep saying all these things and then what they actually do is the complete opposite, which is kind of confusing and is also terrifying because it means that people understand what virtue is. They simply don't do it. They use virtue. Uh, They use uh, high moral language as a way of uh, controlling others, of of dominating and subjugating others, right? There's a famous statement that a psychologist made, I think it was a psychologist made about the spouses of sociopaths or psychopaths because the spouses of sociopaths or psychopaths they have this stockholm syndrome thing of course and they have this they often have this perception or this belief well if i could just get him or her to understand how much they're hurting me or how badly they're behaving then they'll change and the psychologist said you know one of my main jobs is to get them to understand that the psycho that they're married to it's not that he doesn't see it's that he doesn't agree. Right. Right. Because there's this belief that we have, those of us interested in virtue and communication, there's this belief that we have, which goes all the way back to Socrates, which is that immorality is a form of ignorance. So yes. people who do bad things do bad things because they lack knowledge. And if you provide them with knowledge, then their behavior will improve. Right? People smoke because yes. they don't know smoking is bad for them. When you tell them that smoking is bad for them, people will in general begin to drift away from smoking. And that is sort of happening uh, as, as a whole. Uh, it used to be over 50%. Now I think it's down around 30 or 28% of smokers. So there's this idea, of course, that we have that if we simply provide knowledge to society, then society will be better. Right. And it's, it's a lie. I mean, it's okay. an obvious and complete lie. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's a total lie for everyone and we can never improve things, right? But, you know, if if you think that uh, society is improved through knowledge morally, then just, you know, go and explain to people that taxation is theft and No, unfortunately, that doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, even though it's no. true, even though it's unarguable, even though it's obvious, even though, you know, a four-year-old can understand it. You simply can't explain it to society and have society go, holy shit, taxation is theft? Well, that's really bad. We should stop doing that. Where do I sign up? Right. No, I've, right, I've, tried, with, not, I've tried with my circle of friends, and that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work, right? It's an no, obvious I, and essential piece of moral knowledge. And so this idea that and, – and this is what I was told, right, when I was a right. kid, right? Here, I'm going uh, to tell you what the right thing is to do, and then you're going to be punished if you don't do it. Right, that's what I was told, and and everybody yes. basically gets told that as a kid. Do this, and if you ask why, I can't tell you, but I'm going to punish you if you don't do it. Yes, and and there, yes, there. In my household, it was do as I say, not as I do. Right, and this is why I'm talking about this particular aspect of yeah. my anxiety, which I think is similar to yours, which is um, that hypocrisy is incredibly dangerous. Because right. hypocrisy is not a lack of knowledge, right? No, you, hypocrisy you have to know, you have is to know the to immoral use of knowledge, right? So a torturer really knows what hurts in the same way that a doctor does, right? So 
you know, a while back ago, I dropped some plates, cut my thumb. I had to go get, get a couple of stitches. Now, the guy who stitched me up knew that getting stitches hurts, right? So yeah. he froze my thumb. Yay, thanks. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a good thing to do. So the doctor knew what hurt and took steps to prevent that pain, right? Which yeah. has both my pleasure and productive. Like if it was really, I'd, I'd keep moving my thumb if it wasn't frozen, right? Involuntarily, because it would be painful as hell, right? So <clears throat> a hypocrite is more like a torturer than a doctor in that a, a torturer also knows what hurts, right? And what does he do with that knowledge? He hurts. He uses it to hurt, yeah. Yeah, he makes it hurt more. Yeah. Right? A, a torturer will not sit down and say, right, you bastard, you have done such wrong that I'm going to cut your hair. I'm going to clip your toenails. Yeah, no, that's he's no... Like, f- I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive a nail through your scrotum into the chair, right? Right, that's more fun I'm for them. Use, yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's more fun, right? And so a hypocrite is more like a torturer in that a hypocrite knows what virtue is and uses that knowledge to control and bully and subjugate others. Okay. Right? Yes. Um, I mean, if you were to sit down with your father, who was a mayor, and say that fundamentally he was the head of a criminal organization because it was funded through coercion. Right. That would be kind of rough, right? He's yes. probably quite proud of being mayor, right? Yes. He, yes, he thought he was giving back to the town that he grew up in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, even that phrase, giving. It's like, well, his salary was paid for through the government asserting immoral ownership over people's property, right? Yeah. Yes. You've got yes. to pay 2% of your property value up here in Canada every year in property taxes, which means... You know, the government has a 50-year mortgage on your property forever. <laughs> right. No, yeah. No, you I mean, believed in the moral. system, so. <clears throat> right, right. And look, I'm not saying that he's morally responsible for that because, you know, he's in the matrix and bloody, bloody, blah, right? Right. Correct, but if you yeah. grew up in a household of do as I say, not as I do, like if you, if you went to school and you stole some other kid's lunch money – Let's say you forgot yours, you didn't have any, and you stole some other kid's lunch money, you'd have been punished, right? Yes. But if your dad goes and gets his paycheck through the threat of violence on the part of the police for people who don't pay him and pay his, his budget, well, that's considered to be a good thing, right? He probably had quite high status in the Correct. community. And, and I'm just talking at the very sort of global moral level. I'm sure that there was a lot more uh, – I'm sure this, this do as I say, not as I do didn't come up around the issues of taxation and political power or anything like that. No, no, no. But, it was all just about you know, trying to you – know, anytime I misbehaved, it was trying to correct the behavior. Yeah. And how were you corrected? Uh, I, was, I was spanked from time to time, yeah. And how else? Um, grounded, you know. You know, stuff, stuff taken you know, away. Stuff, kind of stuff taken away. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> forcible confinement, so to speak, theft, hitting. I mean, this was how you were corrected, right? 
I'm not right. look. I'm not saying that they were just outright abusers. I mean, I, this all sounds like within the bounds of that which is legal and generally permitted, if not praised within society, right? So I'm, I'm not saying they were like just evil people. Your father's the head of a criminal organization was a child abuser. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that. No, I understand. These were the methods that were used, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I don't. I don't know if this helps with you. Um, growing up, I've always thought my mother was very reactive to anything I did. Which always gave me the sense that she was always mad at me. Reactive? What do you mean? Um, maybe you know, with a raised voice, sometimes a shout. You know, if I didn't do a chore or something. Um, I, I remember something when I was real young. I don't know why, but I was writing on a piece of paper and I was writing on the hood of a car, and she yelled at me because she thought I would scratch the the paint of the car. Right. Th- you know, things like that were. Like it I makes said, you a little see- jumpy, right, when people just yell at you for Correct. things that don't appear to you to be particularly wrong, right? I mean, I get you don't want to scratch the hood of a car, blah, 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 blah. I, and I have, to, I have to dismantle this with my daughter. You know, uh-huh. like she's drawing on the carpet, and it's like, oh, she's drawing on a piece of paper on the carpet. And I'm like, oh, the carpet! You know, <laughs> it's like I have to tell myself, fuck the carpet. Well, and, and, I'm not going to scare my daughter for the sake of some fucking artificial fibers, right? I mean, I'm exactly. just not going to do it. But I have to, I, because I grew up that way too, right? As exactly. I talked about before, like I put down a cup of water on a, um, uh, I think it was a side table or something like that, and it left a little ring, and my mom just completely freaked out, beat the crap out of me because there was a little white ring. So there is this thing where, you know, damage to stuff is something you punish children for. It's like, well, that makes children less important than stuff. Children's feelings, children's security, less important than stuff. Like, you know, my daughter's four, and I will say to her, be careful with this, don't spill it, be careful with this, don't spill it, and then she spills it. And, you know, part of me is like, well, I told you, if I told you once, I told you, like, I just have to say no to that part of me. Like, right. no, we're not doing that. Right. No, there's definitely a better way to, to handle it, for sure. Are, they, uh, are your parents religious? Uh, my mom is. She's a Jehovah's Witness. Holy crap, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. Uh, fortunately, Are you dropping growing... this an hour into our conversation? <laughs> For, uh, Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. This is what I mean about introspection, right? The fact okay. that you wouldn't consider that to be relevant to any possible anxiety that you might have, that you've got to walk the straight and narrow path or you're going to go to hell, you know, don't, don't do anything that requires a transfusion or you're going to die in the hospital or anything like that. Well, um, let me, well, mom wasn't a full practicing growing up and, and she really didn't push it on us. She, she told, you know, she would tell me the, you know, the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would want them to have you treat you. Um, but because dad was not religious, um, no, she, she did not push it on us. So you didn't go to church? No, not at all. All right. No. Still. That's a pretty core streak of irrationality. And also, I would assume that this is how your mom was raised, right? Yes, correct. And the fact that your mom is religious but marries somebody who's agnostic or atheist, again, tells you a little bit something about sticking to values, right? Correct. I would also assume that if your mother does something that you don't like now, you get to yell at her or give her a timeout or spank her, right? Because you treat other Uh, people as you would want to treat no, but I, 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 because I am an adult, I do call her out on it. Yeah. So, I would suggest 
that if you, I mean, if your parents are giving you rules that they themselves are not sticking to, children pick up on that. Okay. Yes. Right. Children pick up on that. So if you've got a rule called wait till you're married and your parents didn't, that's going to give you an unstable relationship with sexuality, even if they never say, well, we didn't. Right. Because you know. Right. You know basically when someone has real integrity and when they don't. You just you get it at a gut level, I dare say. Now, if you live in a society, as I think you're beginning to really understand, if you're living in a society which is not immoral through lack of knowledge, that's pretty scary, right? Yes. Because this is the basic question. How do we fix the evils of the world? Well, some of it is pretty easy. Like, if, there's, if there is a true deficiency of knowledge, right? How do you fix someone's lack of knowledge of Japanese? You teach them Japanese. How do you fix someone's incompetence at piano? Teach them piano, have them practice. Right? Yeah, but that, I mean, it may... But don't they have to want to learn, too? Well, yeah. Yeah, no, I understand that. I understand that. Okay. But, of course, right? I mean, but that, that's how you fix it, whether they actually end up fixing it, right? Right. It's up to them, okay. right? Yes. How do you lose weight? Well, you you burn up more calories than you take in. Now, yes. whether so, you can tell people that whether they actually do it, but you know how to fix it. So whether they do it or not is right. Right. Is up to them. So how do we fix the immoralities of the world? Well, you know, of course, libertarians would mostly say, well, if we get political, if we get the ring, we'll do good, right? If we get political power, then we'll fix the world. And uh, I just, that's not true. I mean, people no. want to believe that's true because they don't like the alternatives, but it's not true. And how well, do we fix the problem of the world, right? And, and this is a basic, a basic issue. And it's not a lack of knowledge. The argument that taxation is theft has been around for hundreds of years. Arguments about the immorality of the Constitution have been around for, what, 150 years? since the Santa Spooner wrote, and arguments for free trade have been around for at least hundreds of years. Arguments about reason equals virtue equals happiness have been around for 2,500 years. Critical thinking has been around for over 2,500 years. How many people can think critically? Well, very few, right? Right. So 2,500 well, years of trying to get people to play piano still has them playing piano with their goddamn forehead. Wondering why it doesn't sound too pretty and why their head hurts, right? Right. So if you're living in a society wherein you have the moral knowledge that is necessary to fix society, because <clears throat> it sounds like you're down with the basics, right? Non-aggression principle, I assume property rights, reason, evidence, blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> if you live in a society which you want to fix. <clears throat> and you have the knowledge to fix that society. But that society won't listen. Even though it claims to already accept the values that you espouse. Right? Mm -hmm. Then you have a big problem. Right? If you have a Nazi friend, <laughs> just make up something ridiculous, right? Right, right. If you have a Nazi friend and then you convince the guy that the Jews are fine and then he accepts that the Jews are fine but still wants a genocide anyway, then you have a problem. Because what's your plan B? What's your backup weapon? 
right? He already accepts the values that should make him a non-Nazi, right? If, if you have a friend who's a communist and then you convince him that free trade and private property is the only virtuous and just society, and he says, yes, I agree with that, but I still want a communist dictatorship, then you have this. I mean, what else do you have? He's already nope. accepted the values that should lead him to a free voluntary society, but he still wants a communist dictatorship. Well, what, what else do you have? There's nothing else in the chamber. There's no plan B. People say, well, yes, we should not use violence to get what we want. Well, then we shouldn't have taxation or government. No, no, that's different. It's like, well, wait, wait. You already said we shouldn't use violence. We teach our children not to use violence. And then people say, well, I agree that we shouldn't use violence to get what we want. I agree that taxation is violence, but I still support taxation. Well, that's it. Conversation is over. There's nothing else you can do from a philosophy standpoint, right? Okay. So now I'm, tr I'm trying to take that and, and apply it to me and, and my problem. And I'm... Um, I, I don't know. I guess... I guess well, let's I, say, let's say that, I mean, this is just a hypothetical, right? I still talk with your parents. It may be much more personal. I'm just talking about an example from my life, which is around a really deep examination of the issues, right? Okay. Which is, if you're going to go to a party, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that almost everyone there supports the use of violence against you for following your conscience and being peaceful. that they would love to see you thrown in a cage for disagreeing with them in a peaceful way. That knowledge is hard to ignore. Well, I guess it's sort of easy to ignore, but it has problems if you ignore it. Yes. It still shows up somewhere in your life, in your body, in your relationships, somewhere. When I'm around a group of parents, I know that the majority of them approve of the hitting of children which is a violation of the non-aggression principle, and thus immoral. Yes, yes. The majority of parents, according to the standards of the non-aggression principle, are violating the non-aggression principle. Now, I give them some leeway because it's not really been pointed out to them in that manner, right? They just never connected those dots, right? Okay. But I also know that if I connect those dots, the response of the majority of those parents will not be like, oh, wow, crap, I hadn't thought about it that way. I really better stop hitting my kids, right? Right. You don't give employees who displease you a timeout, right? Go right. sit in your office for one minute for every year with your computer off, and if you try to get out, I'm going to push you back into your chair. Oh, you did something really bad. Sorry. I have to take your phone away for two weeks. I'll give it back to you in two weeks, my employee, right? Right. Or your driver's license or... Your Xbox, whatever it is, right? Right, right, right. So you live in it a world where people... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, in my day, it was Nintendo. <laughs> sure. But you understand, right? Yes, yes. So this, this is just part of where my caution in society comes from. And it's rational caution. So is my anxiety you know, a rational a, caution? 
Well, I, I'm just giving. I'm, I'm not trying to give you an answer. I'm giving you a methodology of exploring. Okay, got which, it. Okay. And, and pointing out that that methodology of exploring things is at a very different level than how you were talking in the first half of this conversation. Okay. I'm just going to. I'm just providing you an alternative way of right. examining right. these issues, right? Right. Right. Obviously, yeah. Obviously, no. You can't give me the answer, but I. Yes, you're. I'm but but you need what to work. Saying. Whatever the answer is, you need to work at this kind of level. Okay. Because philosophy is where the emotions work, not where the conscious mind works. I know that sounds kind of weird because we always associate philosophy with the conscious mind. But philosophy right. is universal and philosophy is relentless. And philosophy is to a large degree experiential. And I believe certainly my highest abstractions have the greatest connection to my deepest emotional experiences. Once I got that I could not emotionally either survive or flourish in the presence of intensely irrational people, right? That became an unwanted, unpleasant, unwelcomed, but necessary answer for me about how I could socialize or how I could not socialize. Like, you know, if you're a drinker and you quit drinking, you really can't hang around with a whole bunch of other alcoholics, right? No, no, you'll just start drinking again. Yeah, they'll, you know, even if they, quote, respect your decision or whatever, right? You're just right. putting yourself in that situation over and over again. I mean, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm certainly not knowledgeable in particular in this area, but I would imagine that part of getting over addiction is you got to change your circle, social circle if it includes a lot of addicts who aren't quitting, right? Correct, correct. So when you become philosophical, if you have a lot of people in your life who are anti-philosophical, if you go for the non-aggression principle, then you have a whole bunch of people in your life who attack the non-aggression principle while claiming to uphold it, who are deeply irrational to the point of being immoral. Yes. Well, then you're just an ex-drinker among, among drinkers, right? Yes. Um, my uh, my girlfriend's family are democratic socialists, and I don't spend a I <sighs> limit my time right. with them. Is she visiting them in Hawaii? No, no, no. She's a, she's a psychologist, and she's at an APA conference on Honolulu. Okay. Okay. So. Right. And where is she with the non-aggression principle and taxation and coercion and all that kind of good stuff? Um, she's, she's – I mean she's definitely for a non-aggressive approach. Um, I think, you know, but she's kind of fine with um, – not fine with it because because I share with her what, the things that I am learning, and she doesn't think it's right. Um, but you know, she's going along to get along. You know, she's not <laughs> just like psychiatrists. Sorry, just like psychologists recommend that everyone do <laughs> conform well, to your group. That's the best definition of mental health. Anyway, go on. Sorry, I'm being facetious. No, I no, I understand. Um, no, and she's she can't change the world, and but she's trying to she's trying to make changes with individuals to help them be better. That's No, I understand that, but she's yeah. going to face a big problem with her family, right? If she becomes philosophically consistent with the non-aggression principle, then right. she's going to have to point out to her family that they're advocating the initiation of violence, right? Right. And what's going to happen then? Uh, 
people don't get along or yeah and and she's not and she's oh you're not, an extremist you're you know you're crazy uh what the hell are you doing i mean you you calling me some kind of thug i mean all that stuff yeah i yeah i try to i even brought up the uh, against me argument with someone and they called me a racist at the end of it so excellent yeah <laughs> excellent well uh that helps clarify the relationship doesn't it it does. I bring I, you truth. You bring me slander. Hmm. It, it does. I, and like I said, I limit my time. So, uh, but you know, these are her family. She's not wanting to. You know, she just ignores it. She's not going to sacrifice her family relationship. So. Well, I mean, I would argue that that's not exactly the way to put it. Okay. Like that's once, enough. once you accept a kind of truth, another kind of truth. Once you accept a basic moral truth. If you then have to hide it from your family, I'm not sure what people mean by saving the relationship by hiding the truth of what I believe, of who I am, of what is the highest moral value for me. To hide all of that and say, well, I'm doing that to save a relationship. I don't understand what that means. I mean, if you don't have a relationship where you can be honest and talk about deep issues or real issues or true issues, and change behavior accordingly, I don't even know what to call that, but I'm not sure what I would call it a relationship. Does that, does that make any sense? It does, and it does, and I'm I'm obviously misspeaking for her, so that's... No, that's, no, I mean, that would be the common parlance, right? Yes. Which is, I am not going to bring up moral clarity in my relationships because I don't want to harm those relationships. Yes. But unfortunately, the moral clarity that you can't bring up has already harmed the relationship because you can't bring it up, right? Yes. And that's the point of the relationship is honesty. Yeah. Well, and it's not just in, it's not neutral honesty. No, 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 no. No, like I lost my car keys this morning. That could be an honest statement. It's kind of immaterial, but it's honest, right? Correct. But we're talking honesty about good and evil, right and wrong. Right. Right. That's pretty important honesty. I mean, when I was a kid, I was always told to be honest about right and wrong and to confess when I was wrong and, right? Yes. So, I, again, I'm just sort of pointing out that this is probably at the level that um, that you'd be working. And I would also argue that when you were a kid, you might have gotten some of this stuff instinctively, which is why you were more receptive to it when you got older, right? Yes. Oh, I always felt, um, you know, my mother was, uh, uh, what's, uh, oppressive in a way. I mean, you know, when she didn't want me to, you know, anything she didn't want me to do, I, I did. Just because I didn't like being told not, that I couldn't do something. Yeah, like, I think the most intelligent kids are the kids who have the greatest opportunity for philosophy later in life. They have like a click moment where they say, something's vastly wrong. Yes. With this whole situation. Something is vastly wrong with this world. Mine was very clear when I got caned for going over a wall to get a ball. I right. caned on my ass. And this hearing this man in his 40s grunt and sweat and hit me when I was six in the ass, it's pretty hard to escape the basic knowledge that something about the world is deeply fucked up Right. when this can occur and be praised. Right. In, in and so – Go ahead. Oh, I was just, I mean, yes, I've been spanked. I've never been, you know, my parents, you know, never beat me or anything like that. But 
yeah, I was spanked and, 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 and my own father, the couple of times where he spanked me, he did say, you know, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and of course, if you hit your girlfriend for not doing what you want, that gets you off in a court of law and you say, no, 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 no. see, I hit her because I love her. Oh, well, off you go then. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's, and, and that's, I have been able to talk with my parents about that and, and they, you know, they've apologized. They said, you know, we are sorry. We, you know, we were doing what we were told, you know, we were just, you know, perpetuating, you know, how they were brought up and they thought that that was right at the time. So they apologized and then started making excuses. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't take it as an excuse. I took it as an explanation of, of why they did it. No, it's just, it's a justification, right? Right. I mean, anti-spanking textbooks have been around since the Second World War, right? It's a um, Benjamin Spock's book, um, Common Sense Book of Child Care or something like that, was um, explicitly against spanking. That yeah. came out, I think, in 1948 or something like that. So okay. there's plenty of anti-spanking material that's been around for at least two generations. So right, and they, they just and didn't they look did. into that, right? They didn't. And, I, and you know, it's funny. I, just, I asked my mom about it last night, you know, and I said, you know, did you look any books? And she said no. And I said, she said uh, she didn't know of any. And, it, you know, the self-help. No books on parenting? Well, and I said, well, what about, you know, the Dr. Spock? And she, and she had said it just that type of thing was not trendy and so the information wasn't readily available wasn't readily available i wonder if that had worked for you if you had a math test you know and and you forgot your book at school say well i didn't do well at the math test because the information wasn't readily available so can i get a can i get at least a b right yeah right Plus, you know, your mom would say, why, why on earth would I take parenting advice from a Vulcan? Right? I mean, that makes no sense at all. <laughs> oh, it's an old joke, but it's still a fine one. Listen, man, i got to get out and some other callers, but thank you so much for a very interesting call. I certainly wish you the best. Okay, thank um, you. Look at the tensions between your values and the society that you live in. Um, I, think that's, I think that's important. Okay. I think that's important, um, uh, and, and I hope that will help. Okay, can you give, just give me the names of the two people, Nathaniel Bradshaw... Uh, no, Nathaniel Brandon and John Bradshaw. Uh, John Bradshaw, I think, is a Christian, but he's still got some great stuff on self-knowledge. And they both have workbooks that you can get and, um, you know, do something more than just read kind of thing. Uh, right. The Psychology of Self-Esteem I found to be a very good book. Psychology. I haven't read it in a number of years. Psychology of self Yeah, Psychology of Self-Esteem. That's, uh, you know, like Leonard Peikoff's uh, books, uh, the ones that Nathaniel Brandon wrote while he was still in contact with Ayn Rand seemed to be the best. <laughs> like Ominous okay. Parallels is a fantastic book, better than anything he wrote since, I think. But um, yeah, those are what I would recommend. And really start working at a very deep level to figure out what are the conflicts between your values and the values that society proclaims versus the values that society actually practices. Uh, that is a really chilling area, but can be very helpful in, in figuring out the source of anxiety. Okay. Already. All right. Thanks, man. Great call. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. All right. Next up today, we have Mart. Hello, Mart. Hello, Stefan. Thank you for taking my call. Man, thank you for your patience. I'm all ears. Yeah. Can I, can I just uh, say something to Kevin real quick? 
Okay, there's um until we um you know gets to the root of all this stuff you've been talking about. Um there's and I'm not a medical professional or anything, but there's a homeopathic remedy that really matches a lot of the symptoms that he mentioned. And it's called uh, Lycopodium clavatum, or in short, Lycopodium. And I'll spell that for him. L-Y-C-O-P-O-D-I-U-M. And some of the symptoms that he mentioned, like lack of confidence, and um, let's see what else. It even mentions sexual problems. Look, I've got to tell you, and I'm sorry to be annoying, but as far as I understand it, homeopathy is basically water, right? Um, well, there's that's kind of a long story, but um, it, it's it water with the impressions of things that used to be in it, and so on, right? Right. It's basically based on the premise that water has memory. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, so which before, and listen, I would just, but, I just want to sort of point out that before people start getting the homeopathic remedies, just look for the usual, right? All the double-blind experiments that prove that it has efficacy, and so on, and all that kind of stuff. Just before right, you start right, thinking. Right. Right, what is going to cure? Right, angst. right. I've just uh, I've okay, been, but anyway, I've been so you, some... let's move on with your call if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Okay, just want to throw that out there. Um, anyway, my question is about um, what incentives businesses have to have such things as fire extinguishers, emergency exits, that sort of stuff in place in an anarchist society. Um, you know, obviously, the first thing I came up with was. They want to protect their private property, but I guess status might argue that, you know, things like fires and, and stuff like that happen so infrequently that maybe they might have an incentive to cut corners. So I was hoping to get your insights on that. Um, well, I mean, it's not that they want to protect their property. I assume they want to protect their customers more, more so even than their property, right? So if you're running, if you're running a movie theater and there is a fire and you know 200 people get burned right that's pretty bad right yeah so uh, I, I would suggest that um, that would be something that you would not want to uh, have happen so um, you would want to protect your customers uh, first and foremost and uh, after that uh, of course, you would want to protect your own financial interests because you would really want to make sure that you weren't going to get uh, sued for negligence, right? And the reason you would get sued for negligence is you would ha like people would have to be knowledgeable of the theater, right? So you'd have to have a big sign posted outside that would say, we don't have emergency exits here. Right. And what that means is if we... Uh, if there's a fire, you're going to get burnt to a crisp, most likely. <laughs> and there'd have to be a big sign, and you'd probably have to be, that, that would have to be reviewed and signed, that you would sign away your rights to sue if you get burnt to a crisp, right? Right. So you'd have to have informed consent about these issues, right? Right, right, right. Now, if you, uh, uh, and if people want that, then they would go and they would take the risk of getting burned to a crisp with no right to sue. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's a theater across the road that says we have emergency exits, but it costs you a nickel more to get in, what do you think people will do? Yeah, all right. Well, that, that answers my question, so thank you very much. All right. Well, I think, I think we answered all right. So let's move on with the next. Uh, next up today, we have Anthony. Hello. 
Hey, Steph, how are you? I'm good. Listen, just to keep the gender ratios um, mixed up a little bit, I'm going to refer to you as Anne Tony. Okay, that's no problem, right? Okay, then. <laughs> good. We'll move along. Let's see if we can stereotype women as much as humanly possible in this call. Lovely. So, boys, haircuts. Anyway, go on. So, um, I guess um, today's question is kind of personal to you. Um, I wouldn't obviously ask it if it wasn't something that had been playing on my mind as well. So, I was just thinking in relation to, obviously, your multiple achievements, three of which I would say are obviously stopping a lot of parents hitting their children and... um, I think you've addressed pretty much every status argument going, so you put together this archive of libertarian or anarcho-capitalist thought um, where, you know, you've, you've looked at everything. And then there's also, I think, a really important achievement, which is putting self-knowledge back in the centre of philosophy. And certainly in my social circle, We'll bring up things with each other, like, oh, I noticed the the other night you, um, you know, you said this, and uh, that made me think you were were thinking this, or you were coming from this place, and we'll hash things out and talk about them, and we'll learn about ourselves and each other by doing that, and I think that's of of great value, and um, and the question was sort of like not to pry in any old wounds, but. When you look back upon your your life, you know, and the difficulty you had growing up, um, you know, was it all worth it? I know that's that's a horrible way to approach the situation, but you know, that's well, sorry. That's, was was what all worth it? Was 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 everything you've gone through to get to where you are worth it to you? Oh, no. I mean, no, you mean like the childhood I had? Yeah. Oh, no. Good Lord, no. I can't imagine. I mean, sorry to sound so surprised. Like, it should be an obvious answer. I apologize for that. But oh, no, I'm no, so glad you're being honest. No, gosh. I mean, I, I would have moved reality, if possible, to to its opposite physics to have not had the childhood that I had. And the right. fact that... It gave me some sensitivity to the sufferings of children um, is not uh, – is no justification for it uh, at all. Uh, and I'm not saying you're trying to justify it or anything like that. But no, I don't um, – uh, uh, you know, the number uh, – you know, I very may well, may well have gotten cancer because of my childhood, right? I mean the stress of a, an abused childhood – uh, raises significantly uh, the the possibility of adult cancerous and so on. So, no, I don't uh, I don't view it as as beneficial uh, or, or or worth it. And if the price, I mean, I'm very happy with my life now. But if the price of my like, let's say that the child my childhood left led led to this show or something like that, and people would say to me, well, okay, if you had a happy childhood, you wouldn't have the show. I'd say, well, then I won't. I would not have the show. I, I would take that. I mean, yeah. what what you know. W- years and years of abuse and suffering and terror and and rage and and hostility and and attachment disorders and uh, god i mean going to visit my mom in mental hospital i mean like i just i'm not you know i i would give up the show to not have to have gone through that um i mean there were i have a, a novel 
called Just Poor, which I'm actually sort of halfway through reading as an audiobook uh, in, in my spare time, my little bits of spare time. And in it, uh, someone asks a woman who had a pretty bad childhood. He says, "If you before if you if before you were born, if somebody were to show you what your life was going to be like until the age of say 16 or 17, would you choose to be born or not?" And she says, after a long moment of thought, I would not choose to be born if I could only see my childhood up to the age of 16 or 17 or, or 18 or so on. I would not choose to be born. It would not be worth it to me. And that came out of some real introspection that, that when I was a kid, I mean, I'm not sure that I really, really wanted to live. Like it just wasn't a secure and and happy enough environment it, like it quite the opposite it was a, a brutal and terrifying environment so i'm not i mean i don't i didn't particularly want to exist as a child i mean i kind of would get through the day and and i would kind of look for you know well i guess i'll be an adult sometime and i'll be free of this or whatever but no, if I if I had sort of looked at the first 15 or 16 years of my life and said before i was born they gave me that the little movie you know the literally the greatest hits, uh, I would say, no, I think I'll pass. I don't, you know, that looks like a pretty, that looks like a jail cell that I don't have to visit. Uh, that looks like a, a prison sentence that I don't have to uh, go through. And so, no, I would, um, I mean, you, the values that I've managed to extract from that hellhole uh, I, I would give up those values for the sake of not ha having to go through that childhood. And the reason I say that is partly because I think it's like it's genuine to my, my sort of true experience, but also because I sort of don't want to give people who brutalized me the excuse Red of, up. well, you know, obviously we did something right because look how he turned out kind of thing. And uh, I just think that's not yeah. – uh, it's not uh, – there really is – there is no excuse. Yeah, look, if I – you know, if I if I break someone's kneecaps, maybe through physical rehabilitation, they discover a love of exercise, and maybe they lose fifty pounds, and maybe they end end up adding five years to their life, and bloody bloody blah, blah, right? Well, so what does that mean? I that it was good for me to break their kneecaps? Of course not. And so what I you know, I mean, one of the things that has guided me as a parent is the idea is that question. Right, it's the question um, uh, that that a god might pose to Isabella and say, "Well, Isabella, if you could only see the first fifteen years of your life, would you want to be born?" And I would obviously am trying to give her the life of like, "Well, hell yes, right." And uh, so, I, does that does that come close to answering? Yeah, your question? I mean, when when someone sort of asked me the same question and they, they didn't do so uncompassionately they did it from true curiosity and I was thinking you know I only really really started to enjoy myself a couple of years back and I, I really I love my life now um, and I do enjoy a lot of closeness and intimacy with other people and I thought about it and the only answer that I could come up with was it's too early to say because you know if another you know 27 years or 
or more as good as the last two or three, then then maybe. But at this point, I can't predict that. And it, it, it reminded me because said that he would live his life over again a thousand times, and um, you know, despite going deaf and being in love with music and all that stuff. And I think Nietzsche said he thought that was like the measure of a good life. If, if when you died, you could look back and say, I'd love to live my life again, over again a thousand times. And it seems like... Well, that's but sorry, sorry to interrupt, but, but that's, that's a very fallacious yeah. question, though, in my mind. Totally. Go on. No, because, because, I mean, it wasn't my life of for course, the first 15 yeah. years. You know, it wasn't my life. It was it was my it was my mother's life for me. Yeah. So so, so from that standpoint, yeah, from that standpoint, I think my choice is my life. Yeah, I mean, so as an adult, the choices that I make, I'm 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 pleased with the choices that I make. I, you know, I make my mistakes and I try to correct them and so on because it's my life now, at least to some degree. I mean, I still have the after effects. I think of of that, you know, first fifteen or, or eighteen years of trauma. So yes, it's my life now, but. It sure as hell wasn't my life. I mean, you know, I dragged to church. I didn't want to go. Put in shitty schools. Didn't want to go. Put in public. Put in boarding school. Didn't want to go. Had parents I never chose. Uh, you know, poverty. I didn't have any uh, any real pleasure in. Um, had a sibling. I didn't choose. I mean, that wasn't my life. That was just something to get through. Um, you know, it's like going to Ivan Denisovich. Uh, you know, one of the Gulag fictional characters of Solzhenitsyn and saying, well, are you happy with the choices you've made in the gulag over the last five years? And he'd say, what fucking choices? Yeah. Yeah. So um, my life, I mean, uh, I, I would not want to go back to being my mother's prisoner for the first, for 15 years, 15 formative years. I would never want to do that. Yeah. And so, I, you know, the idea that, oh, yeah, I choose to live my life all over again. Well, yeah, the my part of it, sure. But not the, the prisoner part of it now. Yeah, and um, what you say is so true. And I think, uh, you know, in the depths of paranoia, that was like one of my greatest fears that, you know, I just have to do the whole thing all over again. Because in a way, some of the things, they were, I don't like to use the word, word worth it, but they were of some val some things that I suffered with of some value because I learned something from it. But the only thing that was valuable was what I had what I had learned to have to and I don't just mean childhood stuff, I mean say as a young adult, making bad decisions um, which I can take responsibility for, or at least most of the responsibility for. I could say, Okay, well yeah, I made a shitty decision, but I learned something valuable from that. But I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't want to clear my memory and go back and go through the same thing again because it was painful. The only value I extracted was, you know, so far as I could apply it to the future. Right, but the, the only value you learn out of being abused is how to avoid being abused. You know, like if you stick your hand in a fire, hey, I've learned something valuable, which is don't stick my hand in a fire. You know, and, and so that's not really that valuable. Yes, yeah, so you know, like, like so, so Bertolt, Bertolt Brecht, um, uh, a playwright who was a fairly ex elaborate scumbag, but he has a story about. <laughs> I know he was stuff. in. I think he, yeah, he was in. He was in some war. I think it was. I can't remember First World War or something like that. And he was a surgeon's assistant. So you know, get all these guys who get the crap blown out of them and the 
battlefield and you know the surgeons would just you know hack off limbs they just put these piles of limbs all over the place because you know they didn't have any time for any complicated stitching they just hack off limbs and you know no anesthetic kind of stuff so look he he and the surgeon became quite good at hacking off limbs without anesthetic and without trying to save them but that's only because of the war to so say well the war is really good because it taught Bertolt Brecht and his surgeon how to hack off limbs without anesthetic and without trying to save them. It's like, but that, so you're saying the war is good because of conditions only created by the war. That's called the tautology, right? The war is good. Why? Because it produces knowledge that only the war required. Well, that's kind of circular, right? And so it's true that uh, I learned things from my history. Yeah, it's true I learned things from my history. But what I learned from my history was to avoid anybody who has anything, any characteristics like anybody from my history. And that's what I was thinking because, yes, I've, I have been given gifts for helping other people as a view by working, working through my own stuff. But it seems obviously that those gifts would be entirely unnecessary if it wasn't that when I meet people, they happen to have had really difficult times going up as well. And so I can obviously use what I've learned from overcoming my wounds to help them overcome theirs, but that would be completely superfluous in a world where children were treated as well as they should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and look, I mean, for, it is true that suffering generally is the way that the world changes because it won't listen to reason, and therefore, like any addict, it has to listen to suffering. And the way that the world changes for the better is you put suffering in its proper place. And, you know, as, as of the moment, we generally have a society where children are blamed and parents are defended and absolved, right? So, you know, we, we hit children for minor infractions, but then parents get endless excuses for hitting their children. I mean, that just makes no moral sense uh, uh, whatsoever in any way, shape or form. And so… You know, in, in certain cultures, this is an extreme example, but in certain cultures, the victims of a rape, the victim of a rape is blamed and she, she's punished. You know, if, it, if it's a woman, she's sent to jail for the rape. Uh, that's, of course, completely immoral. I mean, it's evil. And, um, you know, the evil of rape is, is what would need to be focused on. But this blame the victim is, yeah, we're very clear that you don't blame the victim in almost all circumstances except child abuse. Uh, and, um, but what we do is um, the victims blame themselves. You know, every time I post something about spanking or child abuse, I get all these people who say, well, yes, I was spanked, but I deserved it because, you know, I was a handful. I didn't listen. I was rebellious. I was willful. I was this. I was that. It's like, okay, yeah. It's like a woman saying, well, I deserve to get raped because I wore a short skirt. Well, we recognize that wearing a short skirt does not justify that, and we don't blame the victim. We, pl- we place the moral uh, emphasis solely on those who are violating the moral rules. And for children to spill things, for children to be disobedient or whatever that means, uh, is not a violation of the non-aggression principle. Uh, to hit a child is a violation of the non-aggression principle. To yell at a child is a violation, I would argue, of the non-aggression principle in that it has significant, serious, negative, long-term, physical, emotional, and mental health consequences. And the child does not have any option in the relationship. And, you know, if I lock you in the basement and intermittently play really loud, unpleasant music, that would be considered to be harmful to you. Uh, and so uh, the, the kind of trauma that comes out, even of verbal abuse, uh, I would consider a violation of the non-aggression principle in the same way that putting a slow 
neurological toxin into a child's body would be a violation of the non-aggression principle. Well, you can damage the neurology, uh, the neurological characteristics of a child through verbal abuse. So, uh, and, and this is not something I've even particularly talked about. And, you know, I mean, I simply smile <laughs> at the uh, coming firestorm of people saying, oh, now he's redefining bad words as, as a violation of the non-aggression principle and blah, blah, blah. And that's the usual reaction whenever you push the moral envelope uh, one inch closer to where it's supposed to go. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, the science is very clear that uh, neglect is pretty much the worst abuse. And... Um, uh, I think sexual abuse, um, verbal abuse followed by physical abuse. This is sort of the hierarchy, as far as I understand it, of what the science has to say about the harmful effects of abuse. And uh, physical abuse does appear to have uh, fewer negative consequences than verbal abuse. And therefore, uh, if, simple, if simple harm to the child's brain and body is a standard, then verbal abuse is a violation of the non-aggression principle because uh, it is a slow accumulative toxin in the mind of the child. Uh, you can't internalize a fist, but you certainly can internalize negative or destructive or abusive voices. So uh, anyway, I just sort of wanted to, uh, uh, to point that out. Unfortunately, for the world to progress, um, the parents who abuse uh, must end up suffering because the suffering is going to occur for the children or the parents. And I'm sick of it being applied to the children. Uh, it really needs to be applied to those who are violating the non-aggression principle. Uh, which is unfortunately the parents. Now, of course, the reason that we put the suffering on the children uh, is because children have less of a capacity, in fact, almost no capacity to fight back. Whereas if we say to the parents, you're morally responsible, the parents get, you know, sometimes they'll thank you. I get a lot of email thanks saying, whoa, thanks for waking me up. Uh, and then some parents get pissed off uh, and all that kind of stuff. But sorry, uh, you know, this is just what has to happen. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I guess we can only say that even if you learn from suffering, it only what you learn is only relevant to overcoming suffering. It has nothing to do with um, achieving peace, and you know, achieving peace is is um, learned by the practice of all the disciplines in your life that are associated with building a good life and a good social circle, so that you can enjoy the fruits of, of, of having developed those skills. Um, yeah, all I learned from being abused was how to avoid abuse, and I would much rather the abuse have never been present and not learn how to avoid it. Like, would you rather learn how to live with polio, or would you rather eliminate polio from the environment? Well, I go with plan B. I work, I go with eliminating. I don't want anyone to have to learn the lessons that I had to learn. I don't want anyone to have to go through the experiences that I had to go through or that you had to go through. I mean, why, why would you want that? Let's just work at eliminating the problem at the source, which is very simple. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, you know, to get the non-aggression principle extended in the ancient world from the tiny minority of the ruling class to get to get it to include things like women and children and slaves and foreigners and all. I mean, that was a big job. I mean, you were trying to push it out from like 5% to 100%, I mean, or at least 80, 50, or 60. That was a huge job. I mean, all we're doing is we're taking the last step, the last step. I mean, the non-aggression principle is already accepted to cover uh, men, uh, women, uh, the disabled, um, uh, uh, fetuses after a certain period in most countries, uh, uh, children in schools in all but I guess a couple of dozen of U.S. states, uh, and and all we're saying now is look, we just 
we have to take that which we accept for every adult and every person in a coma and every fetus past a certain number of weeks, uh, and we simply have to extend it to children. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that last step is a doozy, and there's a reason why it's last, but at least we have the momentum of having extended it to a vast majority, at least of adults hitherto, which is, uh, makes it a little easier, but of course, still the defenses that people have uh, uh, against extending it is, is still significant. And of course, if we'd had tackled that one first, everything else would follow, would have followed shortly afterwards. Um, I have one more um, question. I was just listening to an earlier call where you said you get, you know, you get it if if you're dealing with a if you're dealing with a hypocrite, even if you're you're at a young age. And I was just wondering if you're absolutely certain that everyone does, or you're just talking about yourself, because I have to say that one of the things that I think was pretty difficult about growing up in my environment was actually I never, I had the kind of level of cognitive dissonance where I never, like a lot of people, never thought, yeah, I always blame myself. I always thought that I was the one in the wrong. So I think it would have been really helpful to me if um, someone had come up and said, you know, if you know, if your mum says anything you think is a bit weird and odd, um, just just don't listen to her because she, you know, she's kind of a bit, you know, she's a bit fucking crazy. So if it sounds a bit odd, you know, be because you'd give me this ridiculous advice for um, dealing with situations at school or whatever, and then I'd go in and act on what she said, and it would make things worse, not better. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you do always get it. I think sometimes people have a defense mechanism that um, makes them not get it. I mean, it would have been easier if I had got it in some ways. Well, look, I mean, I, I don't know the details of your history, but I, I you know, did, did your did your mother or father or both, did they act differently in public than they did in private? Yeah, see, that's one thing I can say. Like, my, my parents are not, you know, that, like you said, your mum could switch, you know, when she picked up the phone and suddenly go all cheerful. My parents are really, really bad at hiding their dysfunction. Like, uh, and until you said that, I would think things like, Jesus Christ, have you got, guys got no shame? You know, and have so wait, a, they a would they would be they would be violent or abusive, like right in front of oh, a police. I could have a I could have a friend in the car, and they would you know have the same kind of mental crazy. No, no, no. You mean another child? Have. Oh, um, no, no. I, I, as a uh, as a young adult, um, you know, um, she could if if my mum was already in a bad mood, she could go mental. Uh, 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 another adult it's like she has like no she has some level of 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 control in terms of sometimes she can dial it back but if she's activated enough she'll be just as mental to to a stranger you know if, if she's if well, she's sorry it's up. not it but it's not necessarily mental because she never did receive any negative consequences for it right right yeah and that's one of the things it gets perpetuated because well no it just I mean this is this is the one thing that I had to learn from my mother which is that my mother understood society a lot better than I did because I kept waiting for help right. and hoping for help and my mom totally got that nobody was going to do anything 
Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that, that, that's the knowledge that she had that I resisted. Now, I resisted it for obvious reasons of like I wouldn't have gotten out of bed if I'd accepted it. Like if I'd have just accepted that my mom was right about the world, that she was going to be able to do whatever she wanted with no negative consequences, even though dozens or hundreds of people could hear what was happening uh, in her little thin-walled apartment. So your mom being mental in a place where she's going to suffer no negative consequences is not exactly mental, right? Yeah, yes. I see what you mean. Because I've thought of that before. It's like, you know, she gets what she wants from bullying and losing her temper. It's just like, I'm not getting what I want. Click, I've lost my temper. But the thing is, that's clearly a, a strategy that's always worked for her. I mean, it works for her with my dad. So, so I don't, so in, in a sense, yes, I think like that pattern has been enabled. It's not worked for her in the sense of she, you know, she has to spend her life constantly angry all the time. I don't think that's really um, a very pleasant way to live. I certainly wouldn't enjoy it. But um, there's never been any sufficient standing up to that in the environment that would make it more helpful for her not to act the way she's always acted than to than to change, you know. Sure. And and this is I would say a deficiency in love. Which I can understand, and I'm not criticizing it, but it's a deficiency in love from those around her. I mean, once I really got how dysfunctional the people around me were, and I really made that resolution to say, I am no longer going to ignore, enable, or support dysfunction in those around me. It is no longer going to be part of my social vocabulary if somebody acts in a destructive or abusive or negative manner I am no longer going to ignore it I am no longer going to support it I am no longer going to enable it that became what I did and if people then acted in a destructive way I'd say this is destructive I don't like it this is not, this is not a positive experience for me and it gave an opportunity, right? I mean, people, a lot of people, they're just broken records until somebody drags the needle, right? <laughs> Sorry for those under 30, you know what I'm talking about. But they just do the same thing over and over again, whatever works in the moment, right? Screw the long run, right? It's like smoking. It makes you feel better yes. in the moment, you know, screw your health. They just do whatever feels good in the moment. Alcoholism, ah, just drink yeah. in the moment. Drug abuse, a real prescription light bulb, otherwise. Yeah. A real light bulb turned on for me. When you when you when I first heard you say that a couple of weeks ago, um, or whenever it was about that, they just say whatever, whatever, whatever works in the moment. And the other one that was that is so insightful. I think it's such an important thing that you share it. It's that idea of people will create abstract standards, and then when you try and apply it to them they've always got an excuse they've always got a reason why there is an exception to the rule and it's just generated in the moment um here's the reason why you need to hold yourself to impeccable standards and be perfect all the time but oh when you apply it to me actually no it, this isn't actually the same in this particular situation because um 
you know, insert made up on the spot reason here. It could be anything. Um, the 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 most recent one was, oh yes, but you want to be a counselor. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, there's another reason why I need to be perfect and and um, you're never allowed to be subjected to any standards. Yeah, and what's you know what is a more power based and influential relationship, a parent or a therapist? Well, clearly it's a parent. You know, therapists have all these rules about how to conduct yourself with clients and don't accept gifts and no sexual contact and no dating and blah de blah de blah, right? And yet, you know, parents can frankly do pretty much whatever the hell they want. Uh, and it's a much more powerful and and formative relationship to be a parent to a child. And so. I think, um, yeah, so I, I would definitely not uh, not accept behavior, destructive behavior from people around me. And that actually gave them an opportunity to change. You know, if people are ignoring or enabling your bad behavior, then most times you're just going to keep doing it. If you give even a tiny shit about people, and certainly if you give a significant shit about yourself, you just have to put the brakes on that stuff. You have to have that little momentary continual intervention. Say, no, 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 no. If you're going to talk to me like this, I mean, I, I can't stay – like, I'm not going to stay. Uh, if, if this is how it's going to be, like, if, you, if you're going to feel free to talk to me like this, uh, I'm not going to, uh, I may have had to put up with this in the past. I don't have to put up with it now. If you're going to talk to me like this, uh, I'm not going to stay in this conversation. And then you go home or you go somewhere else or go stay at a friend's place or whatever. And then you come back and you say, are we going to be able to have a conversation without you yelling at me, intimidating me, calling me names, blaming me, uh, being destructive or in, in some other way? And if they say, no, screw you, you're still an asshole or whatever, then okay, well, I'm going to go again and I'm going to come back when, you know, we'll try it again. And then, you know, if you try this a whole number of times and they, they simply harden their perspective and get even more hostile, then they've made their choice. They've made their choice to to live in their defenses rather than connect through virtue. Uh, and then it's like, well, I can't go in and fix other people's thinking. And so I just made my choices around that. So the people I just I you just got to make that resolution. I am not going to put up with this behavior. I am not going to put up with uh, hurtful or harmful behavior in those around me. Now that's a bare minimum, right? You understand that's a bare minimum. And you actually want really fulfilling relationships, not just ones that are. Yeah, like you want you want people to support you. You want people to be enthusiastic about what you're doing. You want to be enthusiastic about what they're doing. You want hopefully to take on great things and make the world a better place. And but at a bare minimum, you know, don't don't abuse me. <laughs> you know, just don't treat me like an object to venture poison into. That's a, that's that's a bare minimum. Like that that's have me in the room to see if there's a relationship possible. That that's that level, and that's just that's just a basic standard, and and the basic standard for me was, would I accept this from a stranger? I mean that's that's a very powerful question to ask about your personal relationships. Would I accept this from a stranger? If a stranger told me that they had treated their children the way that I was treated, would I want to be friends with that stranger? If a stranger told me, you know, what my family is telling me or treated me the way that my family was treating me, would I say, great, let's go for coffee, right? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If I saw a man hitting a woman in a wheelchair, would I want to go and have lunch with him? Well, no. Of course not. 
if I saw a man hitting his child, would I want to bring my child over to play with them? Well, of course not. Would I leave my child in that person's care? Well, of course not. And why would you leave yourself in the care of someone who you wouldn't leave? Yeah, I'm bringing my inner child's. Yeah, I'm bringing my inner child back in contact with a relentless abuser. How is that self-care in any way, shape, or form? That is a re-traumatization. Say, well, I'll rise above it. Well, well, I can't. I I mean, it's it's impossible to imagine that I could. I mean, that's like taking a, a, a Vietnam veteran to go and see platoon and saying, don't have any negative reactions. Sorry, it's it's outside his control. That is biology. That's hardwired now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, people, you know, people with me, and I'm just talking about, I mean, I think there's good reasons to universalize it, but with me, uh, people had to start treating me at a baseline level of decency or... They just weren't going to – I just wasn't going to be in contact with them. I just – like I just wasn't going to do it. And That's just – I mean – When you've actually – oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Um, when you, yeah, it does become easier as you've had experiences with, with, um, with other people that are really fulfilling and nurturing. I mean I remember – just going to, to Edinburgh for, you know, a week and just hanging out with my friends there and who really loved me. And by the end of the week, just got to feeling really, really, really good. Um, and I'm glad to be moving there tomorrow. So life is life is getting better. I'm glad it's better for you and me. And, yes, um, yes. Yeah, it's very true. Once you get better relationships, I mean, this is one of the reasons why dysfunctional people will always try and undermine improving, improved relationships for you. Because, you know, they, they don't want the comparison. They don't want you to actually experience a positive, nurturing, healthy, and helpful relationship. Because then they're revealed as deficient. So true. And so this is one of the reasons why abusers always work to, to isolate. And this is why abusers don't like it when you go to therapy. They don't want to come to therapy with you. Uh, They don't want you to get better relationships. They don't want you to break out of the orbit. And, I mean, my family sure as hell didn't warm to my wife. Of course not. Of course not. I mean, she's an incredible, you know, wise, nurturing, healthy, hardworking, wonderful, incredible, amazing, I'm repeating myself, human being. And once I had experienced that kind of connection, that kind of relationship, how do you go back to tense family vindictive bullshit? I mean, you just – you can't. So, yeah, I mean this is one of the reasons why we stay in this low-rent, seamy, crappy orbit is that once you get yourself elevated, it's revealed for what it is. Which is a you know a primordial soup of very primitive dysfunction, and um, unfortunately, uh, people chose that dysfunction over improvement, and can't I can't I can't change that choice in them. I can just change I can manage its effect on me. That's all. 
Yeah. Anyway, sorry, sorry to be annoying, but uh, I think we may have another caller. I know we're going a little bit over, over, uh, over, but uh, I want to make sure we get to everyone. Sure. Thank you very much for the conversation and your sensitivity to these topics, as always. Oh, could I just um, shout out my YouTube channel for any parents listening? Yes, um, I, re- I remember you, by the way, so I'm very, always very happy to help you promote your stuff. Thank you. It's um, the forward slash the progressive parent. That's forward slash the progressive parent. And we have an interview up there, so... For anyone who'd like to listen to that, um, please do tune in. I think there's some good resources on my channel. I hope you guys enjoy them. Thanks again, Steph. Great to talk to you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoy your move. Congratulations. All right, Jimmy James. All right, Steffi Steph. Uh, We have up, final caller, I suppose, uh, Mohammed. Hello, hello. Hi, Steph. Hi, how are you? You know, your your name regularly blew it blew my mind when I was a kid. Uh, because of my trashy Eurocentricism, somebody asked me when I was a kid, what's the most common name in the world? And I said, John, Bob, Steve, Wasphead. And they said, no, 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 the most common name in the world is? Mohammed. That would be you. That's right. And I was like, whoa, there's a whole world yeah, out I'm, there. <laughs> I'm not particularly yeah, I, aware of it. I learned anyway. it like very, very late. I think I learned it like three, four years ago that my name was the most common name. So, right. Uh, I didn't know that before. Um, okay, I don't know if you remember me. Uh, we talked about three weeks ago. Um, I think the show was uh, called "Idealizing a Narcissist." Yes, I do. Okay, well, there's uh, a lot of development that happened um, after we we spoke. Um, very positive stuff. Okay. Oh, so yeah, uh, so I took the decision uh, pretty much. Um, Actually, I didn't tell you because that day that uh, we talked and you told me that you have to quit and everything, I had already uh, an appointment with this uh, with my ex and um, I saw him and then he used pretty much all my kind of hot buttons like abandonment issues, shame and stuff and he used it against me again and I felt really, really bad that day. But it didn't take me like a lot of time to just to reposition myself to connect myself to my feelings and I was really very very tired of, of, of this situation because kind of like um, kind of like addicted but also he's addicted to shaming me more than I'm addicted to uh, to be shamed kind of but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get into that so after what, what you told me and um, I listened and sorry I interrupted you a lot of time the, the last time um, sorry about that That's I, fine. I, because I wanted to listen to you, then I would listen to me more when I replayed the show. <laughs> so I right. said, like, I really should, I should have um, stopped um, talking about it and let you speak a bit. So um, what, what happened is uh, the week after things happened, I had a dream very, like, kind of I was in a, an old house, um, an old childhood friend's house. And uh, kind of I wake up in the morning. Um, go into their room and I see landmines uh, and I have like kind of people helping me to uh, disable them and I disabled them easily and I got into the room there was no one and then there was a, a door at the end of the room uh, that leads to the outside so I, I go to the to the door and of the end of the room and I had to shift gravity to get out that means the upside down uh, that means the two words are upside down to each other so I had to shift 180 degrees into to get outside. So the outside is like the ceiling is is the floor outside, the ceiling of the of the room. And uh, I had a 
a good friend of mine, which I like her a lot, but she had a phone call and her mom told her to come back um, to my, my country to get married. And I had to move on. And then I had um, a train passing by and gave me, a guy handed me eggs, a big basket of eggs. And um, kind of was happy when I woke up with, uh, with that dream. Another dream that uh, I got also like falling floors in, our, uh, in my childhood, childhood home. So there's a lot of stuff happening and also got in touch with my anger for the first time. It was kind of like a spontaneous feeling that I really wasn't expecting. And um, I took a decision. Uh, I met my ex uh, last Sunday and I told him that I'm not going to see him anymore. And uh, we did that peacefully. Uh, I did it peacefully. I don't know how he thinks, but obviously I know how he must be frustrated because his drug is going away. So... Um, I felt really at peace. I was like questioning myself, what am I doing? What am I doing? Am I, I going to be punished? I'm going to be killed like if I, I quit. And I discovered that I had the fear of leaving more than the fear of people leaving me. It's, um, mm. and, and, the, and that uh, uh, kind of, uh, it goes in parallel with what you told me when, when you told me, like I am, you remember you told me the last week, you told me, um, oh, you know, Mohammed, I think you're afraid you're afraid of not idealizing people, not afraid of idealizing right. people. And, and that sounded so like I had goosebumps, you know, and still have goosebumps right now. And um, th that really sounded so true, what you said. It's not like I jumped on that occasion just, okay, I have a solution for my, my life crisis and my suffering. But no, it's not. It's really, it, the feeling was kind of like something very familiar, what you said. It's like an aha moment, you know. And uh, it really things are changing dramatically right now with my feelings. My body sensations are uh, have increased in in a um, in a very kind of like positively, I would say, a dramatic way. Uh, the last session with my therapist, I was going into the street and I see the street so differently. I was kind of plunged in my childhood, so I would see I was like very strange to myself, and everything seems so strange. Then um, I got into my session and I told my psychologist, you know, my legs are pretty much burning. They, they're burning. I have a burn in my leg. Somebody, as if somebody was like holding my legs down. And uh, I had, a, and, and he said like, um, I was like blocked pretty much. And he said like, don't you feel anger for these people that they may have um, stranded you? Or I said, yes. And all of a sudden I start kicking and screaming. I, I felt kind of okay, but... It's, the, it's kind of like the anger or the rage is more and more like deep down uh, and more stuffed. So that's pretty much all <laughs> I wanted really to, to give you this, uh, this positive thing because I feel so much relieved with that, without my ex. And I, I tried for the last six and a half years to get out of, of, of this relationship and I couldn't because I felt guilty. I felt I had to love these people. I had to give them what I have. Uh, uh, you talked earlier about um, to someone, I think the previous caller or the one before, you said these people, they would use information just to, uh, to abuse you more. And I, like, uh, I remember I gave my ex Alice Miller books and he was reading and pretty much he was using these information to kind of like control me more. You know, so if I say something, he would tell me, oh, you're blaming me, you're shaming me or doing something, you know. So it's kind of like bringing me that knowledge against me, you know. So it's kind of like I just want to confirm that, yes. Uh, I mean, you're right, and I have the experience of uh, giving people information, and that information is actually used against me. 
for at many occasions. Yeah, I want to just mention something else. I mean, the dream I think is is fairly clear, right? Um, the, one of the great things about about the subconscious is the degree to which it it loves homonyms or it loves synonyms, right? Or it loves language games, right? So minds. Uh, it, it's really interesting. Of course, you know, the tiptoe around, you can't step here or things are going to blow up and so on. So it's a, it's a good metaphor for living with highly defensive people, highly mm-hmm. reactive or volatile people. But um, mine, of course, also is something that is on the ground, but it's also your personal identity, mine, who I am, what you own. Oh, my right? God. So, so it's, it's great for that. Uh, the, so you were able to disable the mine with the help of your friends. I think that's wonderful. I saw the friend uh, actually. It's then, a police people. It's a kind of like inspector. It's like under the movies, you know, like they have like a, a team of uh, like a SWAT team. You oh, know? like but clue finders are, and inspectors, right? Yes, exactly. They were. They came yeah, and well, they said, "Well, that look, might have the been mines are not really... that could, Yeah, that could be our I, conversation. It could be philosophy as a whole. But uh, and the yeah. fact that you should have to shift gravity to get out. Yeah, uh, gravity is again one of these words that has. I mean, it has a number of meanings. Obviously, it means, you know, attraction of mass to mass. But also, gravity is is graveness. It's it's the importance, you know, to, to gravitas, of course, was the word for somebody who had moral weight because they had a serious uh, and mature approach to ethics and so on. So switching gravity uh, is very important. What that means is that to take yourself and your own morals seriously rather than other people's needs seriously. One of the things I think that happens... Uh, that is really chilling. That that I you know I, I, this is my experience. You know whether it's useful to you, of course. Oh is, yeah, is yeah, very you, useful. I love your experiences, and I really trust. Yeah, so my experience, experience. You know, my experience was when I was conforming to other people's expectations and serving the needs of self-involved others. Then it seemed like we were close. It seemed like they cared about me, but. Which- it was not true. It was not true. And one of the most terrifying experiences of my life was realizing how little I mattered to narcissistic people. <laughs> that was really disorienting. Right. So, you know, like, let, let me sort of give you an analogy that I sort of thought of at the time. Like, if you've got a heroin addict, and that heroin addict you know, sometimes gets free drugs from a dealer. Well, he's going to be over. He could be friendly with that dealer. He's going to, hey, how you doing? What's new? How thing? How how are your kids? How's your family? How's your life? How, oh, you've got a spot on your elbow. What happened? But he's going to be all kinds of chatty and friendly, but not because mm-hmm. he cares about the dealer, but because he because wants he a wants couple drug. of free drugs. Yeah, he wants the drug. Now <laughs> well, let's say that dealer. You made you. Made, you sorry, uh, uh, Stefan. Uh, you you made a very very interesting podcast called Addicted Humiliation. And that opened up a lot of uh, doors. So but go ahead, continue, please. Now, let's say that that dealer uh, moves away. Well, what's the drug addict going to do? He's just going to find a new dealer and start charming that dealer, right, in the hopes of getting cheaper or free drugs, right? The, the old dealer is inconsequential. Like, he doesn't care about the person. He cares about the drugs, and so if the old dealer says – like if the old dealer says, I'm giving up my lifestyle. I'm not going to deal anymore. It moves away or whatever. He goes to jail. I mean the addict is basically, OK, I need a new – got to get a new dealer. And he's just going to leave the – I mean he's not even going to think twice about the old dealer anymore because it's just going to be focused on the drugs. Now, the narcissist needs the drug of worship, of um, compliance, of 
subjugation, the subjugation of others. And if you don't supply that drug anymore, they will simply move on and barely notice. And so, especially if we've had years either inflicted or invested in those relationships, the degree to which these kinds of people can just move on to a new neurotic food source is really chilling. And it's kind of a knowledge that we had the whole time. Because when they're focused on us as supplying their, quote, drug, we feel all kinds of important. And yet, if we then refuse to supply that drug, they just go somewhere else to get it and not even look back. And so that is pretty chilling to realize the degree to which we are not important to users, to abusers, to manipulators, to predators. We're just not important. You know, if, if one gazelle gets away, the lion just goes for another one. It doesn't sit well, there and mourn and say, oh, I really missed that gazelle. Oh, that was the best gazelle ever. We were going to get so close. Well, I guess they were going to get close and the gazelle was going to end up in the stomach of the lion. And they just go for a new prey. They don't, don't care that much about you. Well, actually, you know what? The, um, I agree with what you said because they always like. I mean, my ex uh, told me that he's with uh, with another person right now, and he's trying. Actually, it didn't work and stuff like that. But the thing is, I asked him to not to stalk me. I asked him to not to concentrate on me to try to get a life. Obviously, I'm protecting myself from that. But uh, the thing was like kind of uh, strange. Is I have a kind of photo album online. And uh, kind of like four days later, I have like 400 hits on it. Normally, I have like two or three hits or maybe you know 400 hits. So pretty much like every day, 200 to 300 four hits. And I was like kind of like, a, uh, what, if the drug de- what, what if the drug addict would hold the drug dealer to not to go? And I feel that. I mean, I had an experience with a, with a friend of mine. Uh, she's a girl. And I tried her to get into her to have like kind of uh, uh, an introspection on her childhood. She told me that she was abused sexually and stuff and told her like to take that seriously. She was hitting her child. And I asked her to never hit her child. And each time she hits her child, her daughter, she would call me, told me, Mohammed, oh, I feel so uh, guilty now. I told her, well, can you stop feeling guilty? I'm not going to get on your side. I really like for that child, do not hit, hit that child anymore. Anyway, I, I stopped seeing her last year. And six months uh, after, she would attack me and she would tell me, like I, I hacked into her computer, um, and kind of like she's got, she wants to uh, to to file a complaint or stuff like that. And I told her, listen, you know what? I really want to talk to you if you want, because obviously she was very much attacking. And I I felt that because I stopped from seeing her, and she was very much relying on me to talk to me each time she has a problem. And since I don't see her, I don't want to see her anymore. That then I got pretty much inside. Uh, she wants to bring me again inside her her circle by force so it's kind of like i think stuff what is it when you get free when you get knowledge people will stop you from from that because like what you said to uh to anthony before you said like well because when you get the knowledge and you know you're gonna unmask those people they're gonna like really appear at their uh, they're gonna appear really like who for who they are so that's why i'm kind of like afraid now i it's kind of like there's a fear of not complying of not going back to that to that person because i feel like uh, i'm going to be punished and i believe that this is this is my childhood uh, environment more than the reality because i'm an adult now i can protect myself i can even like uh, you know like go to the police and say listen i'm harassed or i'm this and that but but it's kind of like what is difficult for me right now is this childhood word that i i got pretty much like everything i'm seeing is with my childhood it's kind of like 
I feel so strange to myself. I feel strange, like as if there's something coming. And in my dream, I don't know if you remember, I told you I was handed a basket of eggs when my therapist told me, well, that's kind of, it's kind of like a, a new life. You know, it's kind of like a, a life to be born or something like that. And it's kind of like I feel something is happening, going to happen soon. I, I feel like I'm going to see something. My legs are burning, uh, really burning as if some, some needles like I have, like these are these body sensations that I want to get close to. But whenever I get close to, they shut down. Yeah, it's I mean, I would, not, I, would guess, I would guess that it's um, that you're going to have a life where you are not reacting to other people's needs, oh, but you are living your values, right? Other people are going to want things from you. Other people are going to want you to date them. Other people are going to want you to give them jobs or lend them money or have, you know, crash on your couch or, you know, other people, you know, when you live in society, other people want stuff from you. Mm. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. They, they can ask for whatever they want, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't but, have any problem in giving to. I mean, yeah, as long as I don't away, get right? used. Yeah. yeah, ask away. But but the reality is that I, I imagine what's coming for you is you're no longer trying to figure out how you can fit in or appease other people's requests or demands. But you're going to try and figure out what's best for you. And, you know, the magic word no that we're all born with, but that gets scrubbed with us with the loofah acid of general culture that you are going to learn the magic word no or you're going to learn the magic power of just ignoring people so you think like I'm sorry very emotional because it's so difficult no is, is the healthiest word in the known language because we say no or we should say no to just about everything we should say no to just about everything you know, I, I should have said no to everyone except my wife. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know her before or whatever, right? I, I yeah. should have said no to all of the friends I had in the past until I have the friends now. Because I couldn't get my friends now while I still had my, quote, friends of the past. No is the most important and universal and powerful and necessary and healthy word in the English language or in any language. And no is something that is ripped from us. No is our shield no is our health no is our strength and it is torn from us like we're born with a third arm called no that is pulled out by the roots from between our shoulder blades and no is so essential and learning to say no again when you've been punished for having a no because you know narcissists they hate the word no right they, yeah. they just they can't stand it because yeah. no is is not convenient to them and it reminds them that other people have existence and other people have choices that differ from theirs and they can't easily deal with it without obviously saying that they're a narcissist, right? Mm -hmm. And we should be saying no to just about everything in our life because the number of people who come along who have compatibility and value and virtue uh, who can really add positive things to our life in a sustainable uh, uh, way is tiny. It's tiny. It's like one person in a thousand, one person in 10,000. So the most important word is no. And I imagine that that's the word that is erupting from your legs to your chest to your yes, yes, yes. But tell me what you think. Oh. 
Like what you I'm do sorry, said to your boyfriend. I'm, I'm so moved. No. I mean, I'm so moved don't, by don't, it. don't apologize for feeling. That's healthy. Don't apologize for feeling. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I think you should be very proud at your sensitivity. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, I've cried on podcasts. You can cry. It's it's not poison. It's, you know, the, not like the guy in My Little Pony says. It's liquid pride. Totally different. No, no, no. This is this is sensitivity. This is growth. You know, this is this is the blood of stretching. That's tears. And sorry, go ahead. And you, yeah. So no is is the most important word. No and skepticism. You know, I go to a store to pick up some gum. I say no to everything else in that store. Right. Yeah. I walk down the street and I say, in a sense, no to everyone I don't stop and talk to. Is you mean you mean you disobey, right? Because I say no, you disobey, because all these people they want you to obey. It's kind of like the childhood, because I had to obey my mom all the time, and I disobeyed it many times, and I got severely tortured, not punished, but like, it's torture. Like, a, you know, a piment hot paste on my body, uh, put in my hands in boiling water and stuff like that, so I knew that I don't like her. Yeah, it's terrible, terrible, it's terrible. And, um, and I think that what I had, I think that, very possibly that my dad or my brother or my uncle, my uncle, I know he abused me sexually. My brother, I had some dreams about him being me, my older brother. And my dad, it's kind of, uh, I think that maybe he gave me a, an attention and, uh, you know, like sexual attention for a child, for, for a child who doesn't have any attention. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, I think in the mind of the child would say, in the false self, I would say like, okay, well, I'm having love. You know, I'm being loved and stuff. And well, uh, sorry, just just to be go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. to be a little bit more clear about that, at least from my perspective, mm-hmm. uh, a child will starve if nobody has any interest in the child. That's right. Yeah. Right. So if if an adult takes sexual interest in a child, then if that's the only interest that the child can get, then the child will generally submit to that for fear of if you say no then you will be abandoned and you will That's die. Right. That's right. Right, yeah. And, so and have to comply, we you know? generally have the drive to survive whatever the cost, which is why uh, so many children, of course, are sexually abused. I mean, the statistics are fairly horrifying, right? One in three girls, one in five boys, not even counting yeah. prison. But so many children are sexually abused and so few of them come forward uh, and, and confess and, and – and, well, not confess like they've – but com- reveal what is happening because children will choose – even the sickest bond over no bond. Because if you have sexual value to a pedophile, at least they'll fucking feed you, right? Yeah. Um, um, in a way, what you said earlier about the, about the no, that has been now, it's in my mind right now. Yes, it's a no. Yeah. Because I was kicking in my therapist's office, I was kicking with my feet, and he told me, Mohammed, you have strong legs. This, uh, you have a lot of, you have physically strong legs, but you have this strength. I've seen it, maybe you, because I was closing my eyes pretty much, and I was like shouting and uh, yelling, and I'm saying, no, don't touch me. No, don't touch me. Don't get close to me. And, uh, and I've been like, kind of like afraid and have uh, anxiety. I was listening to uh, earlier um, callers, they were talking about anxiety. With my anxiety, I kind of like talked with it, with my therapist, and I told him, you know what my anxiety and panic attacks, they come from? He said, he asked me like, okay, well, tell me. I said, it's from repressing my anger. 
Yeah. I repress my anger so much. And it's not like an anger. I'm, I'm not angry. Uh, sometimes I get angry by reaction. But this is like kind of like out of nowhere. It comes and overwhelms me. And I, it comes into from my legs and it goes up until my head would. Uh, I feel like a lot of pressure in my head and I feel I want to scream. And then I would so be so much scared that I repress it. The minute I repress it, I dissociate. So it's kind of like I'm in this right now. And kind of like I'm happy being in this because I wasn't in this like maybe two, three weeks or even a month ago. And also I want to like thank you for all the podcasts you're doing and all the things that you told me the last time. They changed so many things. And also I want to ask you a question. (laughs) It's kind of a simple question, but please let me ask you what to do with this now. Because you said in my legs, I feel the no, my body the body sensations and they feel so much a lot of pain you know it's a lot of pain and i relax myself i listen to nice music that relaxes but the the pain is there as if the pain wants to be acknowledged as as if the pain it's like i'm relaxing i'm not no tense not being tense at all i relax my eyeballs i relax my hands and and all this like my stomach is hardened that i will try to breathe but the legs are what to do, how to go with this, because I feel something is coming. I feel, I feel it. I feel something is big is coming. Well, and I would I'm guess sc- that scared. the biggest, the biggest no is flight, right? It's fleeing. Oh, and you don't you think it's, uh, don't you think it's, um, it's a fight? It's a fight. Uh, like a no, no, like no, anger? no F- fights. No, the, the biggest no is, is the flight, not the fight. Because with the fight, you're still engaged with the people, right? Okay. Right. So if you if you leave, right, mm-hmm. then that's the biggest no. Right. If, if you if you're married and you're fighting with your spouse, mm-hmm. you're still engaged, right? That's if you right. get divorced and move to Australia, that's the biggest no to the marriage there is, right? Uh, okay. It's very interesting what you're saying because what you said is I say no by leaving, right? The, yeah. The biggest no is disengagement. Is, is not having anything to do with people anymore. That's the biggest no. Oh, okay. Right? If you're still, like, the, the goal, if you're, if you're cornered by a bear, first mm-hmm. thing you're supposed to do is get away. That's what you want to do, right? Now, if you mm-hmm. can't get away, then you fight. If you have to, right? Okay, well, if you don't mind, uh, ex- if you can explain me this. Uh, you said, uh, okay, so it's like kind of like, I'm not, I, I, I hope I'm not flying from my childhood history here. What you tell me that I am saying no, it's like I'm, I'm kind of the more I say no, the more I face my childhood history and my childhood pain. That's how I... No, no, no. Sorry. How, what I mean is that as a child, oh. you wanted to get away. Yes, of course. But for, You wanted for to the, run. You wanted to flee. You wanted to get to a safe environment where you weren't being tortured to drapes, right? Of course. That's right. But as a child, I couldn't so as you start So as you start to explore the no and you say no to your... Uh, ex-boyfriend and so on, it seems mm-hmm. to me likely that your legs are going to activate <laughs> because the biggest no is the flight, not the fight. I still don't understand it. Uh, it's not I don't understand it, but uh, it's kind of um, a little bit foggy what you just said. Uh, but I understand you that want, what look, you said. Uh, you, your therapist talked about, sorry to interrupt, your therapist talked about kicking, right? Now, kicking is fighting, right? It's not yeah. running. 
No, it's not running. It's, right. I'm, so, I'm a, and it came alone. I didn't really activate it. I just like uh, out of nowhere, I start kicking and saying, no, don't touch me. No, don't touch me. And I felt trembling. So, I was so listen, trembling. so the anger and look, the, the, I don't mean to bypass this. The anger against your abusers is yeah. perfectly healthy. The danger of the anger is it can draw you back into wanting to fix, rage against, act against your abusers. Okay. But That's not a- the no I'm talking about. The no I'm talking about is you don't have contact with people who've tortured you. That's right. I don't. I, I don't. The, 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 the last standing still narcissist in my life is gone right now. So I don't have uh, a, a, anyone in So you've in got no one to fight with. Right. So you've got no one to fight with. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the flight mechanism may be kicking in, which is why your legs uh, feel so energized. You might want to try this, right? So okay. there's um, uh, there's a song. Gosh, what is it? Love Rescue Me by 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 U two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ruins to the right of me will slowly lose sight of me. I've always been struck by that. There's some great lines. Uh, uh, Bono's a, a great lyricist. It was a great lyricist when he was younger. Uh, before he got trapped in his yellow eye caves. <laughs> but um, uh, the ruins to the right of me will slowly lose sight of me. Uh, he actually, I think, co-wrote the song with Bob Dylan or something like that. Uh, and he does some great live versions with, uh, with I think, B.B. King sings, sings with him in that. And um, it's, to me, that, that always meant, like, I'm going to move on with my life. And the ruins to the right of me will lo- slowly lose sight of me. The people who've ruined themselves and who are, stuck in the ground like ancient ruins, like they're embedded and they can't move. They have no legs. They're embedded. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep progressing. Yeah. And that's me moving with my legs. That's not me going to try and fix up the ruins. That's not me going to move in to the ghost town and try and fix the wiring and fix the lighting and pretend that there's people there when there's not. Right? The heavily defended are the dead. Because all they well, are is reaction. All they are well, is they're like a computer program. They have no choice. They have no free will. It's stimulus response. It is primitive. It is uh, uh, deeply destructive. It is incredibly confining to other people. When you have people who react to what you're doing with <laughs> automatic destructive emotional defenses, they are building like the cask of Amontillado. They are building brick by brick a prison around you with their defenses. That's right. Because they don't that. have choice. They don't have intimacy. They don't have curiosity. They don't have self-knowledge. You do something, they react negatively. You do something else, they react negatively. You do something else, they react positively. There's no thought in it. It's All it is is kibbles and sticks, kibbles and sticks, kibbles and sticks all the time. Oh, I like this. I'm going to give you a pat. Oh, I didn't like this. I'm going to yell at you. Oh, I like this. Here, I'm going to make you some lunch. Oh, I didn't like this. I'm going to yell at you again. I mean, it's, it's, it's a prison. Because there's no negotiation, there's no self-knowledge. You're just bouncing around like a pinball off other people's defenses. Their yeah, lack well, and of freedom I, I see it. Your lack I see it in action. Yeah, and I, I, it's my lack of freedom. It's not like a lack of freedom. You said, sorry. What's interesting is you said I see it in action, which has two meanings, right? I see it in action. <laughs> I saw, right? I saw, but I, I see it in action. In action, because I see in it action, in right? Oh, okay. right. In action means no action, right? Uh, so, and, and there is a. a an incredibly boring paralysis that comes out of heavily defensive people. uh, And heavily defensive people are basically people who blame their environment for their emotional responses and therefore take no self-ownership and and therefore have no need for self-knowledge, so they they think, right? They blame their environment. 
and it's a very primitive. My my daughter is actually outgrowing this phase, right? So she, you know, when she was younger, if she tripped on the sidewalk, she would say they need to fix that sidewalk. That sidewalk is, is you know, let's go tell them to fix that sidewalk. That sidewalk is a problem, right? And we'd go and look at the sidewalk, and it wouldn't be anything in particular. And I would just sort of have to point out that she tripped. I mean, it doesn't mean that she's bad. I mean that she tripped. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes you were running too fast. You know, we tell you not to run in flip-flops, blah de blah blah But she's just growing out of the phase where she blames her environment for what happens to, to her. Instead of learning by experience, you mean? Instead of like learning to not do, to, to pay attention when you walk or when you run. More yeah, than instead of like, people. I'm responsible for not tripping, right? And, and if there's a problem with the sidewalk, I need to see that ahead of time. And if I'm running real fast and not looking down, I may not see something that, that I can trip. Now, sometimes the sidewalk is a problem or sometimes you step in a puddle and it's a lot deeper than you think or whatever it is, right? But, mm-hmm. the, you know, to, to, to internalize security means that you, you have to be responsible for your own safety and to just blame the environment for negative things that happen to you or for your negative re- reactions or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's just immature. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and a lot of you get to not, yeah, you, you get to blame other people, and and it's basically people who have uh, an excess of self-attack can't stand personal responsibility because for them personal responsibility means self-attack, and the reason they have that is a because of their childhoods where I'm sure self-attack or, or being attacked was their template, and b because they shit on other people so much, you know they've attacked other people so much that they've only reinforced that to the point where self-knowledge. Basically, when you say you, you have to take some ownership for your life, what you're basically saying to them is, here, take this steak knife, insert it into your midriff, and you know, draw a pentagram uh, and do some sort of satanic harikari on yourself. It does seem like such an excess of self-attack that it, it would appear to them psychologically suicidal. Uh, and so when yeah. you attempt to get people who blame everyone else for their own lives to take some personal responsibility, they will fight you I, I think literally unto the death for the most part. And they will generally give up any relationship with you rather than take any ownership for their own actions yeah. and choices. Yeah, and these kinds of people are, are incredibly toxic and they're yeah. very destructive. And they will drag you down to their level as long as you let them. Yes, I, I agree with that. And also I, I believe that some people, they have false selves, but some people, they became their own false selves, which pretty much uh, fits uh, – uh, my ex-boyfriend, which uh, nothing really changed in him, absolutely nothing. Like I gave him a lot of readings and stuff, and I shared my experiences, and absolutely nothing. He would say, "Yeah, yeah," and support it. But the first minute I am uh, vulnerable, he would uh, attack me for being vulnerable. Um, my last question: I really don't want to take a lot of time. More, yeah, let's keep more it brief time. because we're heading on three hours of my time. But let's keep it uh, brief. Uh, but I okay, certainly do well, appreciate your comment. Thank you very much. And um, my last uh, question would be uh, about the fight, uh, sorry, about the flight, um, about the anger that you always talk about, not always, but I heard you in some podcasts that uh, you talk about the anger and the layers that behind, uh, underneath these, these, uh, this anger. And my therapist explained to me that the, 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 this like autonomous anger or spontaneous anger is a reaction to an event. So the anger would, would come first. And when it's lived, when it's fully lived and understood, then like the similar situation to when this anger uh, got created will come to the surface as memories, feelings, and um, and stuff like that. So it's kind of like I'm a little bit, uh, I got a little bit confused by what, uh, what, with what you told me when you said it's flight. 
but I well, let me let me sort of and again, I I you should listen to your therapist more than me, but I'll just tell you if you want clarification, at least from my thinking. Yes, yes. Then what I will say is that when we are faced with a threat, then we have two options. Basically, we can disarm the threat, or we can escape from the threat. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, and there are times when disarming the threat makes makes good sense. So, if there are rising floodwaters in your town, then you can put sandbags around your house, right? You're not just going to run away and leave your house to get flooded, right? You're going to try and protect, protect your house because you know you have a lot of investment and your house is valuable and your stuff is there and all that sort of stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's one thing that that you can do. If, if it's possible, right? if, if, if the threat is not that rapid and that destructive, like it's just rising floodwaters, then you can put sandbags around your house. Now, if you have a house in some Asiatic country and you see a 200-foot wall of water coming in from the ocean, yeah, you're, you know, right. you're not going to grab your sandbags. <laughs> what are you going to do? Oh, you run, obviously. You, you run. run. Yeah, yeah. You run. <laughs> Sorry about my childhood photos, but there's a 200-foot wall of water. So some Mm -hmm. threats we can proactively work to minimize, Mm -hmm. and some threats we can't, right? So if you have a puppy and your puppy bites you, that's not great. And you obviously want to help your puppy to not bite people, right? That's right. And so then you work with the puppy, and you help the puppy to understand not, not biting as a good thing, right? And that's great. Now, if you have a dog that appears in your yard, you know, stiffly walking with foam dripping from its mouth and, you know, those twitchy Cujo eyes because he's got rabies, you don't sit there and say, well, I'm going to try and work with the dog to understand the value of not biting, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? Going to get away from the dog, right? Well, that's in the – yes, of course. And that's in in the present moment. What if your past is kind of emerging? Kind of like the past is like the feelings of the past, obviously. The feeling and emotion are Yeah, emerged. but what, what are they there for? Are they, are they there to tell you that you have a dysfunctional relationship with people, but you should get in there and try and fix them? Or are they telling you that your past and the people in it are kind of like a tsunami and you've got to run? And to me, it has to do with the level of anger. And if the level of anger is in the rage category, like you're just so enraged about your history, then to me, that's a 200-foot wall of water, and you better run. But if it's like, well, you know, I had some issues, I had some problems, then, you know, sit down with the people in your past, your parents or whoever, and talk about it with them. Oh, well, I talked about um, I talked to them before. Uh, my dad, like, uh, five minutes, and my mom would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I wasn't a good mom, but she wants me to forgive her. And I said, listen, the forgiveness would just... Uh, make you feel good about yourself, but uh, it doesn't Yeah, that's just about her needs again, right? Yeah, it's about her needs, because when I started crying, she told me, uh, why do you do this to me? When I said, listen, you know what, I think what you just said now just proved everything I lived with you all my life. So I don't talk to her, and I I know she has a lot of problems, but they're not mine. I don't feel guilty about my mom. No, and uh, and again, my, my thinking is that where restitution is impossible, forgiveness is impossible. Right. I mean, if 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 somebody puts a ding in my car, you know, let's say some friend of mine's backing out the driveway, puts a ding in my car, and he fixes the car. Ah, fine. You know, no no biggie, right? I mm-hmm. mean, friends have done things to me that have been harmful, and we talk about it, and it's fine. 
you know, I'm sure I've, I mean, I do things to them that are harmful. We talk about it, it's fine. Okay, so but if somebody apologies, destroys your car. Restitution. I'm sorry? I said if the, somebody destroys your car and then asks, like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do it uh, on purpose. Well, excuse me, like, there's mistakes, but there's things that we do on purpose. And my mom did a well, lot no, of then they have to purpose. get me a new car, right? And if they get me a new car, that's okay. <laughs> right? I mean, that's fine. Now, if they say, well, you shouldn't have parked there. I'm not getting you a new car. It's your fault. It's like, well, then we have a problem, right? That's right, yeah. And so uh, for me, uh, if, if a friend does something that's harmful for me, they apologize. We talk about it. And over time, they change their behavior. And, you know, then fine. Yeah. I mean, nobody – perfectionist is a ridiculous standard. Mm-hmm. But for me, there's a, a very, very clear dividing line, which is where there's nothing that that person could possibly do to, to make restitution for what they've done. I believe that. Then too. for me, forgiveness is no longer possible. Forgiveness yeah, is something you earn by restoring somebody back to their original state. Mm-hmm. But to me, uh, w- w- you know, so the people who harmed me when I was a kid, I mean, there's no possibility. They could give me $100 million. And I would, you know, they'd say, well, would you rather have had a happy childhood or $100 million? I'd say, well, I'd rather have a happy childhood. A billion dollars. It doesn't matter. There's no amount of money that could make up for that childhood. That's right. They could send me to therapy. Well, okay. They didn't. But if they did, say, well, I'll give you $50,000 to go to therapy. I'll pay for your therapist. Fantastic. That helps. Well, That's my mom good. Sent me and to that therapy helps me to manage 19. a shitty childhood. But it's still not the same as not having had one, right? No, I mean, like I mean if mom, somebody uh, breaks my leg and then says, I'll pay for your rehab, well, I've still got to go through all the pain and time and expense of, of – oh, pain and time, at least, of rehab. So maybe I'll get back to, to – you know, kind of here's how it is to, you know, I'm still healthy and my legs are not broken. But it still means I had to go through the pain of having my legs broken and then go through rehab. So even if they pay for that, that's not restitution. No, it's not. And my mom sent me to therapy in 1997 in psychoanalysis. And then uh, even uh, like two years ago, she told me, well, okay, are you healed now? Uh, are you healed from your homosexuality? Can you like uh, marry a woman and be happy? I said, well, hello. I mean, like a really, I wasn't like this advanced in my therapy uh, two years ago. And uh, I was kind of like told her, like, what do you expect from me? It's it's all about your own satisfaction. You don't. The, the, I mean, I was like, kind of like trying to get her to love me and to accept me the way I am, which never will never happen. She just wants me to take care of her because she's lonely now, you know. Anyway, so that that, that I, really, I don't want to take more of your time. Um, uh, I, I really thank you um, for everything you're doing, for all the talk, for all the the podcast which I listen a lot, they really help me a lot to remove the guilt sometimes or remove like uh, going back to the old things and, uh, you know, trying to get my life better. And, and thank you for that last discussion we had the last time. It's really, um, it opened my eyes a lot about a lot of stuff. You're welcome. And I'm very sorry about what happened to you as a child and what's happening to you with your mom's rejection of your homosexuality. Um, I, it, it's it's just tragic, and the torture, of course, that you experience as a child, the sexual violations and inappropriateness that you experience as a child, is literally hell on earth. And you shouldn't have been within a billion miles of anything like that. And I'm incredibly sorry that these. And I was I was adopted, by the way. I was uh, I was adopted at the at the age of one year old, uh, because my original mom she. Um, she, she cannot no longer afford. She, that's what she said. She said like uh, what my mom told me. She told me that your mom couldn't afford to take care of you, so she uh, gave you away. 
And I think I had a bonding with my mom because I had a dream when my adoptive mom would tell me in the dream that my original mom loved me. I had a dream of that. She told me, you know, your mom loved you. And I woke up in that dream and I was like shocked. Uh, then my mom would tell me about my adoption about two years ago. I didn't know I was adopted, only about two years ago. And she'd tell wow. me, you know, you were gifted from God. You know, and I would say like you were like handed from God and stuff like that. And I would say... Uh, you know, like I want to now. I want to cry and shout and yell and everything. I said, like, well, this is, this is a gift. Did you take care of that gift? That was like a very intelligent child that's been handed to you. You know, yeah. did you take care of? Did you take care of that child? And she said, oh, I did mistakes and I did this. You know what? I don't really don't care, Stefan. You know, like right now, I have my inner child. You know, which I take care of. I listen to my feelings more, and you know, I really don't. I don't care about these people. I, I really don't care about these people. At a, I really don't. Right. It's in, right. In, yeah, it's look, in, I mean, uh, I think uh, if they used you as an object, I mean, what, what possible sense would it be? Yeah, they were bored. To they care about the, people who need, used you as an object. Yeah, they needed, a, they needed a, a, a clown or they needed somebody to laugh. You know, I have pictures from my childhood. Whenever I'm with my mom, I wouldn't smile. I was like one year old. I don't smile. I was like scared and my eyes are open so much. When I'm with my dad, I would smile. Uh, but it, it explains everything, you know. I just like it, things are; they make sense right now. It's like uh, it's like seeing in a, seeing a movie, but at, but at a certain point, you get into the movie, inside the movie, and you see exactly what's going on, you know. Uh, anyway, so thank you. Well, thank the work you you're doing, much. the work you're doing is fantastic. I think you should be incredibly proud of uh, what it is that you're doing, and uh, this is how the world gets better. I'm sorry that things didn't work out with your boyfriend, but you know. Um, <laughs> As <laughs> you continue to grow, it will be his loss, and, and he will get his over time, uh, not in a good way. So thank you uh, so much. I'm just going to uh, stop talking with you now and do a quick outro, but thank you again so much. Thank you, James, for hosting the call. Uh, I guess Mike will be back next week. Uh, he has uh, gone off to Vegas, uh, or as I like to say it, abandoned my needs, uh, but uh, he had his uh, 30th birthday in Vegas. Uh, which I mean, by which I mean, assume that he has destroyed a large sections of his brain, and possibly contracted several diseases. But had a great time doing it. So, looking forward to getting Mike back, and uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. If you'd like to help out the show, as always, I must remind you: fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Ten bucks a month, twenty bucks a month. You know what is that? A coffee a day, and you get to help spread philosophy. Welcome, of course, to all the new subscribers. Ten to fifteen thousand over the last week or two. That's great. Boy, if you all sign up for 50 bucks a month, I'm in the money. So have yourself a great week, everyone. I will talk to you next week. All the best.